Welcome to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, the queer James Bond podcast. I'm Shane Holland. And I'm Andrew Wheeler. On this episode, we are skydiving deep into the Moore era with one of the campiest classics and the pinnacle of the disco age, Moonraker. Glass museums, cable cars, carnival, and of course, space laser. This film truly has it all. (laughs) But before we blast off, Andrew, have you been up to anything very Bondy this week? You know, as it happens, I went to a fabulous black tie affair filled with beautiful people. And when <coughs> I say I went, I mean I watched one on TV. Oh, oh um, my God. I still have not left the house. Um, <laughs> but the Oscars were on this past Sunday, and it was a rather underwhelming affair because of both the COVID restrictions on the production and the fact that no one has actually been to a movie in a year. <laughs> so I think people are just not releasing their their... The best. Good stuff. No, and no not. one has anyone to talk anything to talk. Like I think no one watched the Oscars because no one's seen the films. Like that's just the, the reality of it. So uh, even though so many of them are available to watch for yes. free, if you already subscribe to so many of the <laughs> streaming services, it's true. Um, but one thing was the same as it always is. Uh, the in memoriam reel reminded us of all the stars we've lost in the past year, and also made some very shocking omissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought that was worth touching on um as a james bond podcast because it has been a particularly rough year for bond actors and people associated with bond um the real did feature max von sydow uh yafet koto helen mccrory diana rigg and of course sean connery um as well as two major behind the scenes talents the world is not enough director michael apted and remy julien who's a stunt coordinator who worked on six of the bond movies it's very uh, interesting um i the in memoriam was a long this year and yep. b there were just so many people to yes. scroll through and you know it's obvious reasons why there yeah. has been so much death around the world in this past year and a half but it was really striking at like how fast they had to move to include the names that they did include and i know you're yes. going to mention those that they didn't yeah, it, it was, it felt breakneck. It felt like it felt disrespectfully fast. And yet yeah. it was still quite long. One of the, um, I mean, look, it, this is morbid. One of the things I love about the in memoriam segment is that they usually showcase, uh, some work that the person has done, at least the like, you know, I dare I say the main people, the most famous people usually yes. get at least a little montage of their best work. So the fact that we didn't get anything uh, about Chadwick Boseman, the fact that we didn't get to hear Sean Connery say Bond, James Bond, yeah. it just it. Yeah, like you said, it felt almost disrespectful to their memory. Yeah. And I don't know how many of these people we actually lost to COVID, but certainly Remy Julien uh, mm-hmm. died because of COVID. Um, and I'm sure just the general stress on the health system was probably a contributing factor. But also, I think we're, we're at that point where we're losing people from these, these early movies at, at yeah. greater numbers. Yes. Um, so I did think it was worth taking a moment to note the omissions, uh, because there were some people that played such a huge part in this, this franchise that we love, uh, that were not mentioned on the reel. The first, of course, that I noticed is Anna Blackman, mm, um, yeah. who is, you know, our favorite Bond woman and our favorite Bond hench person. Um, she really belonged up there. Tanya Roberts from A View to a Kill. 
Um, Peter Lamont, who is a set decorator and production designer on 18 Bond wow. films. Wow, wow, Which wow, is wow. astonishing. I mean, he's done amazing work. Um, Jeffrey Palmer, who is very famous in the UK, uh, but was in the Bond movies in Tomorrow Never Dies. Ronald Pickup, who had a small role in Never Say Never Again, which of course is where Max von Sydow also featured playing Blofeld. Um, and then Michael Lonsdale, which of course we were about to discuss because he played Hugo Drax in Moonraker, the film that we're talking about today. Um, so yeah, sort of odd timing that, that he should be overlooked because um, he's quite a recognizable face. Yes, he like. really is. He's uh, done so much. Um, yeah, but, uh, terrible amount of loss this year in mm-hmm. the Bond universe. Yeah, yeah, it's shocking. Um, so hopefully you have something more cheerful to talk about in terms of the Bondiest things you've done <laughs> this week. What, what do you got, Shane? Actually, you know what? I have some really wonderful friends in my life who take care of me when I'm down. And, you know, <laughs> it's been a difficult couple of weeks, difficult couple of months, difficult year. So, to my surprise, I received a small package from our mutual friend, Jomar, earlier this week. Um, and I was gifted this absolutely gorgeous deck of 007 playing cards made by uh, Theory 11. Uh, the design is just flawless. It's the Bond coat of arms embossed in gold on the case and on the back of each card. Uh, and each face card is holding a different weapon from the series, such as the harpoon gun from Thunderball, the ski pole from The Spy Who Loved Me, and of course my favorite, the pen from Goldeneye. Uh, it's just like this really, really fabulous deck. And I really can't wait to play a game of bridge or baccarat with you. We'll go 15 and 15 <laughs> with a hundred per trick on the side. I don't know what any of that means, but sure. Neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's lovely. I think I've seen that deck of cards advertised to me on my Instagram feed. Um, <laughs> They, they they get me. They know me. Um, so so I'll go down and check my mailbox later to see what Joma sent me. A <laughs> great idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For every episode of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, we recommend a cocktail or drink that matches the theme of the episode, or maybe it just matches our mood. This week, it is Andrew's turn to pick. Andrew, what have you got for us? The plot of Moonraker hinges on a prized South American plant that Hugo Drax wants to spread all around the world. His method was to shoot it at the planet from outer space. He should have tried just marketing it as a hipster alternative to coffee, because today I want to talk about (laughs) yerba mate. Uh, Mate is a South American plant that can be infused to make a caffeinated beverage similar to tea with a grassy, bitter flavor. Um, Apparently the caffeine is sort of a bit bit tougher than tea, a bit gentler than coffee, um, and the drink has surged in popularity in recent years. So uh, I thought that would be the, the right thing to sip on during this episode. It is traditionally served hot in a hollowed-out gourd and drunk through a metal straw. I have tried this method. Drinking a hot beverage through a metal straw is a weird tradition. Um, I don't <laughs> quite get it. Um, but if you don't want to be traditional, you, you can just make it in a mug or a pot. Like it, It's fine. It's allowed. Um, as the weather is getting warmer... And as we're watching Moonraker, I'm drinking mine today in the Brazilian style, which is infused in cold water. Um, usually you'd have it with ice, but we are recording a podcast, so no. <laughs> um, mate served this way is called terere, and you can also flavor it with citrus or juice. I went for a very English option and flavored mine with cucumber. 
um, mm. plus a little spritz of soda water. So it's a very invigorating and delicious drink. A new summer pick-me-up that hopefully will not wipe out all life on Earth. Oh, Sorry, Lord. human human life. Right, a very <laughs> specific, very specifically human life. I'm not sure how. Uh, <laughs> I I wonder that it sounds like it might also pair well with gin. I would love to... I think try, it would. I would love to try out some cocktail variations on this. Yeah, and probably tequila, I mean... Oh, you know, of course, yeah. But, uh, terroir and all that stuff. So, yeah, we, maybe we can try some uh, some yerba mate cocktails later in, in the uh, summer. That sounds lovely. From Earth to the most spectacular adventure in space, Moonraker. It's out of this world. What exactly are you up to here, Drax? Moonraker 1, liftoff. Moonraker 2, liftoff. Moonraker 3, liftoff. Moonraker 4, liftoff. That was a clip from the trailer for Moonraker, the 1979 Bond movie directed by Lewis Gilbert in his third and final outing with the series. It also marks the halfway point in Roger Moore's seven-movie tenure with the role, and co-stars Lois Childs, Michael Lonsdale, and Richard Keel. At the end of 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me, the title card read, James Bond will return in for your eyes only. But with the enormous culture-changing, era-defining success of Star Wars, the team at Eon shifted gears and decided to bring Bond back into the space race. And what a film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did they just reach around for like, well, what's a, what's a Bond f- book that has the word star in the title oh there isn't one uh moon oh here's one. Uh, per- yeah we've got it this is what we're gonna do okay okay uh so the book has nothing to do with anything about the moon or space so nope. we are just going to take uh an old plot you only live twice and kind of set it in space perfect yeah oh boy <laughs> yep <laughs> uh okay so it's fun is it fun? is it even a fun movie <laughs> is it um it has its moments i think yeah. i enjoyed it more as a kid than i do now yeah um, me too and for i mean it has everything that you want as a kid it has gadgets and it has space yeah. and lasers yeah. and there's a lot of action sequences but oh boy do like do the wires show and <laughs> the the cracks in the scene you know it's all it's all there on film. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I won't reveal what it is we're discussing next episode just yet, but I think mm-hmm. I'm really interested in, oh. in the contrast. I think this was a good movie to watch before we, we watch <laughs> what we're watching next, next episode. The perfect um, pick, I might say, yeah. That, that's a little teaser for people to, to, to listen to the end. Um, all right, shall we get into the recap? I think we have to. So it opens uh, in, uh, is it space? I guess it's sort of low Earth orbit. A Drax yeah. Industries Moonraker sh- shuttle is hijacked while being transported by a British like plane, basically. Um, so this is like how they used to travel uh, or like transport the space shuttle um, when they were being built, I guess, uh, in the desert in uh, in like, was it Mojave or right, right. the States? And then they would sh- fly it out to... Uh, Florida. I don't think they're in low space orbit. I think they're just literally it's attaching just a, plane a plane to its back. With a yeah. shuttle on the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I guess it's the 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 yacht the you only live twice comparisons that my, that my my mind immediately goes to. Oh right, we're in space. There's a space yes. shuttle. We're in space. They're stealing. <laughs> uh, like no, that's that's yeah. not what's going on here. And also, you only live twice, which has the great opening with the the shuttle being eaten by a larger fish, basically, and the guy's <laughs> cord being cut is so creepy and powerful and stayed with me. And it's like this yes. is just such a pallid imitation of that scene. Yeah, and I feel like the effects of that scene in You Only Live Twice are so much better than what is literally salt pouring out of the bottom of the <laughs> rocket to make it look like uh, fire. It's so it's so wow. strange. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we definitely forgot some hench people on our list, huh? <laughs> These guys don't have names. They don't count. <laughs> okay, okay. But I do love the visual of these two, like, Russian-looking... There's no reason to assume they're Russian, but I do assume they're Russian. Russian-looking guys in, in like, polo necks, climbing out of cupboards uh, to steal a space shuttle. It's like Yeah, did just... no one check compartment number three? Very strange. <laughs> it's deeply weird. Um, so, yeah, the... <laughs> These are not significant hench people. I'm sorry to say, um, though there is a there is a minor incidental hottie in this opening scene. The, uh, the yes. RAF guy in the cockpit. I was like, oh, okay, this is a the good one start. in the back. Absolutely, I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, the I. Okay, well, the explosion of the actual plane looked great. Not the takeoff of the shuttle, but the actual explosion <laughs> I thought looked nice. Um, and the miniatures used all throughout this film are maybe like the highlight of the, you know, set decoration part of yeah. it all. There's some um, great miniatures, great model work. Yeah. 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 Bond is aboard a private plane when the crew turns on him and he's attacked by Jaws, the metal tooth assassin whom we last encountered in The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, I love Bond's outfit. His white turtleneck. Uh, yes. Just classic. This is Roger Moore. <laughs> yes, it's it's the combination of the, the turtleneck and the the polo, the blazer. Sorry. Yes, the, yes. The, the, it's very, it's very of the time. It's very like you know seventies into eighties. It's very chic. It's very Bond. Now I have a question for you. Do you think shooting the glass shielding of a couple of gauges would cause a plane <laughs> to go down? <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not an expert in flying planes. Um, oh, fair, I feel, fair. I feel like that's what they're, they're counting on. I mean, <laughs> later when we get to the centrifuge, it's the same thing. It's like, well, I'll, I guess I'll shoot this, this output <laughs> gauge, this, this thing that's reading how the machine works and that'll do it. Like, no, <laughs> we, we uh, were very confused about technology back then. Oh yeah, like all smoke and mirrors and no one apparently knew the inside of anything, how it worked. Very strange. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's very a, silly. It is a gorgeous airplane, though. Like the interior oh, yeah. of that. Like I, I could live in that set. It's, it's, it's very like it's still very seventies. Yes, I would definitely be happy to fly anywhere in a private plane like that. <laughs> um, where where does Jaws come from? <laughs> how how does he hide on this plane and no one sees him on like Bond doesn't see him hiding away tucked behind the chair beside him yeah he's what like 611 or something and, <laughs> yes yeah. and clangs like he's got a mouth and pants full of metal something um I, I presumably he was also hiding in a cupboard um they just didn't want to show us those 
scenes back to back of people clambering out of cupboards um, <laughs> would have been very uh, that would have been a great recurring gag in this film <laughs> better than the weird recurring bit with uh, with Drax's women I, which we will get to but I, <laughs> yes. I don't understand what was going on there um, there is some gorgeous scenery some gorgeous panoramas here I don't know why we're mm. suddenly like we've, we've entered the era of the, the panorama shot in cinema because uh, this movie has quite a few really beautiful like wide view uh scenery shots oh uh so let's talk about it bond is thrown from the plane without a parachute but steals the pilot's parachute jaws plummets into a circus tent uh i mean it's beautiful first of all well half of this next (laughs) scene is beautiful yes Uh, the actual action sequence that is happening uh by these two stuntmen, it just looks incredible. They are flying. These people are flying and fighting. And like you said, these panoramic shots, it's something that I don't feel like we've actually seen in a Bond film up to this point. That's so visceral and exciting and wide and beautiful. Yeah, I I love this stunt. Yeah, the, the, the parachute stunt is, is phenomenal. Like, it's, it's such a good start to the movie. Um, and it definitely is like one of those stunts that sort of, you know, there are a few Bond stunts that are Hall of Famers. And I think this one is, is definitely one of them. Um, and the movie maybe just never quite reaches the same highs because then we <laughs> instantly go into Jaws crashing through a circus tent, oh, um, and being caught by the, the safety <laughs> net. And it's like my, in my notes, I literally wrote weird circus bullshit. I um, wrote so many mentions of circus. <laughs> in the in the roger moore bond movies what is up with it what do they have like they're so obsessed with circus culture (laughs) yeah something roger moore and circuses and clowns it's like we're we're gonna see this motif a lot and nobody knows why (laughs) because it doesn't come back in this movie like the fact that jaws crashes through a big top is not like relevant to anything no, nope. it's just how he didn't die this time. And given that the movie doesn't explain how he doesn't die all the other times, it's <laughs> an odd choice. Yeah, very. Um, I guess maybe it has something to do with like falling back to earth, which happens at the end of the film as well. Uh, maybe. 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 Uh, but I mean, that's me really stretching <laughs> what I just saw into some kind of narrative, <laughs> which the film does not offer. Uh, I, now I said half of it looks great because the other half is watching, uh, Roger Moore and Richard Keel on a green screen pretending <laughs> to flail around, uh, close-ups of Richard Keel's, um, overacting, one might say, <laughs> uh, w- which we see a lot of in this film. There's, there's a lot to dissect in, uh, how this film was edited together. He plays to the back of the theater for sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I guess maybe they wanted that character to. I think to. so. Uh, very, it's a choice. It is a solid choice. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> and, and we go straight from the, the circus, uh, into Moonraker performed by Shirley Bassey, which means that my gorgeous Shirley Bassey, uh, ballad is being infiltrated by this circus <laughs> bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, uh, oh. This is also, like, just not the greatest, uh, Maurice Binder visual opening, am I right? It's kind of boring. What, it, what was the concept? Like, there's acrobats, there's moons, there's people doing, like, the Superman motion, um, literally circling of a drain motif, which <laughs> should have been a warning sign as well. It's yep. just like, it's not cohesive. 
No, and yeah, it's a sign of what is to come. Uh, love the soft disco, though. You know, we we've talked about the song, and you mm-hmm. wanted you wanted to rate the song super highly. I think I tempered us a little bit on it, um, <laughs> uh, but it is. I mean, you know, Shirley Bassey lends some gravity to a Bond theme. I've got to say, out. Get I, out. <laughs> someone had to say it. <laughs> we don't need clowns here, Shane. <laughs> Oh, Andrew, this is the circus. (laughs) Bond is debriefed by M and kitted out with a dart gun, a safe-cracking cigarette case, a spy camera, and an explosive watch. Um, I, I, I love the simple setup to this film. I think that if they had kind of just stuck to what we discuss here in the first five minutes, this could have been fun. Uh, you know, it's a stolen shuttle, he's tracking it to the private manufacturer, and, uh, the guy wants to, I don't know, shoot a, shoot a rocket into the earth, which is the plot of the book! That sounds great! Yeah, there are those little touches of, like, where the book is still visible through the, the bump of this movie. Um, and one of them is the fact that, yeah, Hugo Drax is this wealthy industrialist, and it's like, well, we have to see what he's up to, but also not offend him, and, you know, all of that stuff, which I think is great. It's actually, like, there's a tension built into, into that because it's very institutional. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the movie does not follow that that thread particularly closely no. um my my main note for this scene is i like the the ladder the m has a little <laughs> wooden ladder to getting the books on the top shelf and uh, and it's cute i must say watching this i was a little worried about bernard lee but this might be like the year like this might be one or two years before his death essentially and yeah no yeah. i'm looking it up he died in 1981 stomach cancer so uh, yeah yeah uh, very like it's very visible that he's struggling i think yeah yeah this this is his last one and it's i it, did they also introduce uh the secretary of defense in this one who goes on to become m in the next film i believe so oh yes yes jeffrey keen as frederick gray yes um yes that's right so there's a little bit of, of world building going on there, a little bit of Judy Dench into Ray Fiennes. <laughs> Bond is flown by helicopter to Hugo Drax's estate, a French palace that he purchased and moved brick by brick to California. The grounds are filled with astronaut trainees. Um, yeah, there's a bit of, uh, what is it, uh, Citizen Kane Hearst here. I think Hearst was uh, was big on moving his estates uh, around the world. Uh, yeah, Chateau in California, very gauche. I do like Corinne's slutty Star Trek pilot outfit that she, she wears <laughs> to fly the helicopter. Corinne um, is very underappreciated, especially by us, but uh, she does have mm-hmm. a, a fabulous look. Yeah. Yes, she cer- certainly does. Uh, I'm very confused by the description of Drax. What he doesn't own, he doesn't want. Uh, <laughs> that, 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 that could mean anything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of incidental hotties hiding among the astronaut trainees, but oh, it's, yeah. it's real missed potential in the long run. And, and I will come back to this, but you basically have all these like athletic men in tight t-shirts doing jumping jacks on the lawn, and we never get to spend any time with them. No, not a, <laughs> like uh, even a. Oh, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> uh, Bond meets Hugo Drax, the industrialist who created the Moonraker shuttle. Drax welcomes Bond as his guest and pretends to cooperate with the investigation into the missing shuttle. He then orders his man Cha to kill Bond. So, yes, here is our big villain of the piece, Michael Lonsdale as Hugo Drax. Um, and, yeah, it's he's, he's 
terrible to speak of the dead. I think he actually gives a the right performance for the role. I think Drax is mm-hmm. supposed to be quite a drab man. Um, but, but he's uh, so uninspiring as a villain. Like, yes, yes, the, it does make it a bit underwhelming all around. Um, and par- just and particularly he, because how crazy this movie gets, and yes. then for the end, like for Bond to face off in space against a man in like a brown uh, mid length shirt i don't know it just it's very strange yeah there's a lot of touches of other bond villains in here like the the orientalism of the style of dress that sort yes. of thing um you know the the very trumpian uh lavishness um the basis like the trouble is that there's another villain that does most of the or all of these things better um yes. in almost every case um so but i did make a note that you know acquired glamour seems to be drax's thing he's not glamorous but he loves to buy glamour and surround himself with it he has no actual taste himself which means he <laughs> basically presages the the 80s aesthetic in this film <laughs> wow wow so <laughs> so true <laughs> I like that Bond recoils from the offered tea, a uh, long-standing tradition. <laughs> rude, frankly, rude. Um, <laughs> this is the one thing where I'm on Drax's side about afternoon tea, being a fine <laughs> tradition. But this is where also we get, like, Drax introduces us to these two very plain, uh, well, not plain, beautiful women, but but plain in affect. Um, yes. <laughs> that are sort of, you know, the, the lady such and such and the baroness, whatever it is. And it's like, what do they do? Are these astronauts? I guess they must be. I guess so. I think everyone is. I, a yeah. lot of these people we see later in the film, I only first noticed it on my third time through that um, the secretary that Bond meets in Venice is the first girl that he comes across uh, in the Amazon. right. right. This is a villain who has beautiful women peppering every every location, um, all of whom he's going to take into space. Um, but, and they're uh, all mindless and vacant yeah. and sedated. Yeah, they're uh, just so weirdly void. Like, it's just, it, it's slightly disconcerting. And I don't know if it's in the way that the movie is intending it to be. I think they're supposed to be glamorous and, and exotic and we're supposed to appreciate Drax's fine taste. But I actually just look at these women like... This is an odd choice of furniture, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. It's demeaning and it's degrading and, and it's not, it's not making these women look good at all. No, like, yeah, it's so, like, not one of them has a line to be said. Yeah. Uh, no one offers anything interesting to the film in any way other than being there. Um, we should mention, uh, the sidekick Cha. One, the first thing to say is that I think I, maybe said just called him straight up chang in the uh the henchman episode i think we which... both did because we both had just read the word and not seen the film recently. yes yeah um, and it's this weird thing where in the movie more calls him cha which is somewhere between the correct pronunciation and 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 not it's, it's <laughs> oh, the God. japanese pronunciation of of chang so it's you're swallowing the n and the g i'm not an expert on japanese so please let us know if we're getting this wrong. Um, but my understanding is that you're basically just swallowing the N and the G a little bit. So it's like cha, mm-hmm. um, which means what you're hearing is mostly cha. Right. And right. that's what Roger Moore ends up saying. And I don't think people say his name in the film otherwise. Um, does maybe Drax, Drax say does? once? Maybe. Yeah. When introducing him, I believe. Yeah. Uh, that's it though. You're right. 
so we will try our best to to respectfully pronounce the name the correct way but uh, we may we may get it wrong um and the character of cha is played by toshiro suga who was michael g wilson's aikido coach um so what that's a, a what a, rather what a rich person detail. pursuit <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's the producer, Michael G. Wilson. Um, he was like, yeah, hey, you guy teaching me Aikido, would you like to be a hench person in a Bond film? And he's like, yeah, I guess there's money in it. Um, didn't really appear in other films apart from this one. I think had one or two roles here and there. Oh, that's great. I love that. Um, I, I, I feel like I slept on him as a hench person, I must say, because he's just so fabulous in this <laughs> film. He is. He's pretty good. Yeah, he's solid. I, I mean, I think he gets overshadowed by Jaws because Jaws is the, the recurring one and he's in it so much. I would have rather Toshira Sugar make it much further. <laughs> yes, agreed. <laughs> this scene ends with one of my favorite lines, which is Drax saying to Char, see that some harm comes to him. Great, um, great line. Which, it's, it's a nice villain line. <laughs> so uh Bond heads off to meet Dr. Holly Goodhead, a NASA scientist on loan to Drax Industries, and a woman. Um, she <laughs> invites him to try out a G-Force training centrifuge. Chang steps in and turns the power to maximum in an attempt on Bond's life, but Bond uses the dart gun concealed on his wrist to shoot the control panel, which, as we all know, deactivates <laughs> the device. Right, of course. It either crashes <laughs> a plane, deactivates the device. It is the cure-all. Uh I mean, we... Ha- I'm looking for Dr. Goodhead. You found her. A woman? That has to be the most (laughs) offensive thing that could have been said in this film. Yes. It it was crazy. I literally gasped when I heard that the first time watching this through. I'd forgotten. The fact that he thought that that in his universe there would be a man named Dr. Goodhead is interesting, I suppose. I would love to meet Mr. Goodhead. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Doctor, please. He, he's, he's a trained scientist. Um, <laughs> where did they come up with the... Like, Dr. Goodhead is not a name from any of the books, right? Like, Gala Brand is the Bond woman in Moonraker. Correct. Um, why they didn't use the name Gala Brand it just d- is beyond me. It's such a great Bond girl name. Yeah. And Holly Goodhead is not. No. <laughs> like it's, sometimes it, you just go too far. And and I say that as someone that loves Plenty O'Toole. Um, uh, and and Pussy Galore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Goodhead, I think it just lacks... I don't know, I Subtlety? Say it lacks cla- but even then, like, Pussy Galore's not classy or subtle. Uh, no. It's just great. <laughs> Whereas Goodhead yeah, this is, is not like, a great one. I don't know. I don't know. I, we need to workshop this one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I do love her office. Uh, it's just like white and circles and space art. It is very, uh, Star Trek of the era as well. <laughs> um, and she is immediately and understandably cool to him. Or maybe <laughs> Lois Childs is just terrible in this film. <laughs> I am so sorry, Lois, if you're listening, but, uh, she is sedated from the moment we meet her. <laughs> it's an issue in this film, but it's also like, it works for the character for a lot of it. Like she, yeah, yeah. If it is a choice for her to be so affectless, I don't think it's the the best choice, but it makes sense as a way for this woman, this highly trained and competent woman in multiple fields, to be cool on this uh, buffoonish gadabout um, who it is just going d- around thinking he's king shit. You know, it's just that it becomes one level for yes. the entirety of the film, even in peril. 
Yes, even in peril, she is cool, calm, collected, and doesn't bat an eyelash, when, you know, maybe just a bead of sweat on that forehead would have helped. Yeah, you don't need to be like Dr. Christmas Jones either, but, you know, find somewhere between the two. Uh, Bond literally mansplains everything back to her as she is saying it, (laughs) so, you know, this is going to be a long, contentious, (laughs) contemptuous relationship. Yeah, bond-splaining is something we need to look out for, I guess. <laughs> why, do, why does he get in the centrifuge? Like, what is this? Why? <laughs> why on earth would he let himself be put into this mortal peril machine? <laughs> He's an old man, for God's sakes. And I mean, she says it. A 70-year-old can take three Gs. And I was like, oh shit, well, you better get him out of there. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's like, you're James Bond, and this is a death trap. What are you doing? Like, you're not, you're not learning anything from this. I mean, I remember watching this as a kid and being like, oh my goodness, this is amazing that things like oh, this yeah, exist. Yeah. And, you know, oh, that's so scary and cool. And then I'd want to go on the, the, I don't know if they call it the wall of death in other countries, but in the UK, <laughs> there is a ride called the wall of death, which is a centrifuge. You get on it, um, and it spins you around and you stick to the wall. Um, and, and that's the whole ride, basically. Yes, and so many children, so many children have been sacrificed <laughs> to it. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I love that the thing that, uh, reminds Bond that he is in control when he's being <laughs> thrown through this machine is that a picture of a horse's ass flashes <laughs> through his mind. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's a strange choice. Um, yes. But yes, accurate. Um, there, there's a, a great queer moment here where she, where Dr. Holly Goodhead introduces us to the concept of the chicken switch. Um, which Girl, I'm do sure I know I've, it? Yeah. I've seen on a grinder profile or two in my time. <laughs> Are you into chicken switch? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yes, this is the button that's supposed to deactivate the centrifuge, but, uh, that Char has, uh, deactivated. Uh, but also just chicken switch maybe is what we should have called the podcast. I don't know. It's, it's really <laughs> uh, it's our new segment though. Um, <laughs> uh, so this is one of the, uh, one of the, this is the second of Bond's greatest hits for me in this film, the G4 simulator, <laughs> which is obviously just lifted from Thunderbolt, but there are so many more of Bond's greatest hits to come. <laughs> well, let's get into more Bond classic action because uh, he that evening goes to sleep with Drax's helicopter pilot, Corrine, um, and then I guess is using that to sneak into Drax's private study, though I'm not clear why Corrine's bedroom would be so close to Drax's private study. <laughs> Very um, strange. Corrine finds him going through the drawers and uh, accidentally reveals the location of Drax's safe with an indiscreet glance in that direction. Bond cracks the safe using his cigarette case and discovers blueprints for specialized glass vials. Um, all of this, of course, is spotted by Chang. Uh, more looks great in all black, this you know, this cat, essentially a cat suit. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I, I really enjoy that. It feels very spy-like to me. One of the, it's one of the few times he feels like a spy in this film, actually. <laughs> Although he gets rumbled by the person that he left sleeping in bed, so... Mm, uh, yes. Not the best spy craft there, James. <laughs> well, hardly ever, actually, it turns out. <laughs> uh, we do get a lot of gadgets, though, in this movie, so this is a... We get two in this scene. We get the cigarette case mm. and we get the tiny camera, which, of course, has 007 etched into it. Well, so I both want this camera and am confused because if he gets caught is that not like a dead giveaway about his identity yeah 
<laughs> this is the second time we watched a Roger Moore film where there is a piece of merch, basically, with 007 written on it. It's like, I guess they just thought that this doesn't break the world. Like, to them, it didn't. It wasn't a big deal. World famous secret spy James Bond in action, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, this whole bit with Kareen is, you know, leaves a bad taste in the mouth because he has... Ugh. You know, it's basically classic Bond. Use the woman, uh, endanger her life really recklessly, and then really not give uh, a toot about it afterwards. Yeah. Um, it, he has condemned her to death, and he's like, cheerio then, bye. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so it, it's so dark the way he treats her. Neither of them seem into the weird forced kiss uh, when nope. he sneaks into her room. Uh, and also the way that she just follows him... Like, wouldn't he turn around and be like, Corinne, be a deer and watch the door or something instead of just like, <laughs> you know, looking over my shoulder to see that I'm sneaking on your boss. Like, you know what I'm doing. Help me out here. <laughs> like, we just we don't use this character in any way, which is how yeah. we treat all of the women in this film, I suppose. Corinne, I'm clearly a spy. Look at the engraving on my miniature camera. <laughs> uh, help me out. Drax invites Bond to a pheasant shoot. An assassin hides in the trees, but Bond shoots him dead while pretending to miss a target. Which, I mean, Bond straight up <laughs> murders someone in front of Drax and goes, so, what are you going to do? <laughs> Drax is the worst at killing James Bond of maybe anyone. Like, he, he mm-hmm. tries so many times. Every attempt is is kind of disastrous. You know, obviously he fails every time everyone does, but, but it's just that he seems to try and fail more than most and have the most opportunity to just be like you know what i'm just going to shoot you in the back and then pay all of the witnesses who i'm we'll already fine. paying yeah. yeah basically everyone in that estate is on is part of his genocide plot so they probably know he's sketchy it's strange it's so so strange it's it's all a plot device to keep us moving this movie just oh my god it moves at such a fast pace so much is happening and nothing is happening uh we get a cameo from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh, Bond gets driven in in an old 30s motor car, it looks like. Nice. <laughs> Loved it. <laughs> um, and we get a nod to other better sci-fi when we hear the theme from 2001. Yes, we'll, we'll talk about the musical gags in this movie later, because this is not the last one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Gags uh, on gags on gags. Gags on gags. <laughs> I'm gagged. Um, so when Bond departs, Drax unleashes his hunting dogs on Kareen to punish her for her betrayal. Uh, rest in peace, Kareen. We barely knew you. Barely. Oh, this is... I hate this death by dog. It yeah. really sucks. It's... I mean, it's a terrifying way to go. Like, I mean, you know, people quite rightly have fears of dogs in the way that people have fears of of uh, snakes or, or spiders. And, or police. And, or, or police. I, death by police happens quite a few times in, in the Bond films. Like, Yes, this is a, true. A little rarer. Um, um, but like, girl, get in that golf cart or climb right? a tree or don't wear such a long billowy dress around your evil boss. Do something. Uh, she didn't deserve it. Um, no, she Corinne. really didn't. Poor Corinne. Bond visits the glass factory in Venice that the blueprints came from and finds Dr. Goodhead snooping around. Bond follows and confronts Goodhead and invites her for drinks that evening. 
Imagine this scene with uh, Daniel Craig and Eva Mendes in it, and you'll get a sense of what they were going for. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Snipey, flirty banter on the side of the Venice Canals. It's like, <laughs> but instead it's just these, these two sort of wooden boards smacking <laughs> against each other. <laughs> that is literally what this scene <laughs> feels like. Uh, this is, of course, another of Bond's greatest hits, uh, being in Venice. Mm-hmm. Um, and another line that makes me hate bond even more in this film <laughs> i keep forgetting that you're more than just a beautiful woman Ugh, oh god she's smarter than you james for god's sake so um, much smarter than him <laughs> there we get we get one of those many drax women uh is working at the glass factory and her lips do not move in time with her words it's really a remarkable skill uh that is shared by so many women in the bond universe um, oh yeah it's a it's really a, <laughs> a problem a disease that's sweeping so many nations in europe <laughs> The the prettier and more European the woman, the more she's able to, like, ventriloquize while also <laughs> speaking. It's quite incredible. Yes, yes. All these very <laughs> British-sounding uh, European women. Many of whom have exactly the same voice. Um, <laughs> very Because there literally is one woman doing most of the dubs through this era of James Bond. Which Ethel, is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ethel in accounting. We need you for one more. <laughs> I should look up her actual name because yes, she she is a real person. Yeah, she um, is, and she she is in so many Bond films that she is. She, we might as well call her a Bond woman. Yes, yeah, it's true. Bond rejected takes a romantic canal ride for one. Uh, more assassins come after Bond, but he evades or kills them all. What a scene! Yeah, what a, what a sequence! <laughs> what a sequence is right. It's a very elaborate ruse uh, to gun down Bond in the canals. Like so much planning by the villains for these circumstances to have, you know, confluenced so that they would get him in that <laughs> boat. That they would have their, you know, can their uh their boat with all of its gadgets there at the same time. Just so. So circumstantial. Again, yeah, this is Drax really not knowing how it is you go about assassinating. I guess he's used to the idea of killing everyone at once. So killing mm-hmm. one person is like he's something he really struggles with. Because, yeah, oh, let's put a guy in a coffin with throwing knives and then send him down a Venice canal. Um, and, and then, and then have him go under a low bridge. And it's like, what? This was a bad plan. And, uh. It was never going to work out. <laughs> I don't know what you thought was going to happen here, but I, I guess it it's supposed to look funny and fun and, and spectacular and novel. I guess novelty is like the the thing of, of the go to for this film. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, it ends up sort of it it's so cartoonish cartoonish yeah. that it's like it sort of undercuts itself at every step, I think. I mean, it turns into a hoverboat at one point. I mean, we get the infamous pigeon double take. Yes. Uh, like, this this movie truly has it all. <laughs> and uh, is there a man staring at his bottle of alcohol in this one? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Always. Like, that That joke appears in, like, multiple seven out of now. seven Roger Moore Bond <laughs> films, I think. So. And one good reference in a Daniel Craig one, if I remember correctly. <laughs> uh but yeah this all just feels so cheesy that it's not actually very fun to watch for me yeah so bond returns to the factory that night and discovers a biological weapons factory uh 
In an accident, the scientist shatters one of the vials and everyone inside the lab is killed by a nerve gas. But the lab animals survive. What, Ooh, what? what? What science fiction. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, really feel like Don't Drop the Deadly Virus is like 101 on scientists, you know? Right? It's like, like we've had a lot of people handling a deadly virus around the world right now. And, and I'm, uh, yes, some of them did die in the process, but I don't think because they were just clumsily pratfalling around with glass vials. So. I mean, I kind of want to see that though if it if it's true that, that like that's one of those it's crazy if it's true moments right <laughs> <laughs> uh why didn't bond just stay hidden in the glass museum <laughs> like i guess we wouldn't have had that gondola scene but you know we could have cut out 10 minutes of this movie and he yeah. would have he would have actually been a spy if he just stayed <laughs> hidden he had to go chasing after that beautiful woman. Um, yeah, don't go chasing waterfalls, James. <laughs> not, not in Venice, because that usually means that something has catastrophically failed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we get a shout-out to Close Encounters. An- another shout-out to a better sci-fi film. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, and, yeah, this is... I feel like this is where the movie gets unnecessarily complicated in plot with this whole cyanide device... Uh, you know, you just really have to stretch your imagination to figure out how all of this is going to work. And the movie clearly doesn't want you to think about it because they just keep moving along to the next piece of action. Uh, but we get a lot of great scenes in a row with that. Like the, the lab is fun. I, I do like the death of the scientist. It's very, it's a very tense moment. And it ends with this, you know, really fantastic fight against Cha. Yes. So, yes, Bond is attacked uh, by Chang in the glass museum that is next to the factory. Um, (laughs) There is a glass museum, a glass factory, and a deadly weapons lab all in the same location. It gets a little confusing. (laughs) In Um, the very, very small city of Venice. Yes. yes. And and it also is a church tower. Um, We'll get to that, I guess. Right. Um, So, yes, between them, uh, Bond and Chang destroy most of the exhibits in the glass museum. Bond stumbles on some crates of Drax Industries tech that is bound for Rio de Janeiro. Bond then hurls Chang through a glass clock face to his death i wrote in all caps not the priceless glass (laughs) (laughs) honestly it's maybe it was a sign of my incipient queer self that watching this scene as a kid gave me so much anxiety yes (laughs) still as a kid today well yes (laughs) none of my childhood anxiety has gone away shane right right if anything it's only getting stronger Um, all this beautiful art, which I know it's just prop glass, but in the but context hurts. of the movie, yeah, it's like, oh, for goodness sakes, James, at least try. Um, well, he does. He does at first. He, you know, he, I does, guess. he puts a hand on the vase and then everything <laughs> goes to shit and he kind of gives up. But yeah, Cha is, is even more reckless than Bond at this point, which <laughs> well, is weird that's because he's. <laughs> he's he's using a wooden sword. Like I get that kendo is his thing, and I love the the fact that he's wearing this kendo uniform. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like I don't know, maybe maybe shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly, uh, Roger Moore so like abhorred guns that it literally makes the plot of his films crazy and incomprehensible. <laughs> uh, 
all of this throwing around and smashing through glass and like at the end of it he checks the glass vial <laughs> like yes. you know in reality bond buddy you and everyone around you already dead that thing broke within the first two minutes of that fight yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> yeah. venice is no more yeah. basically italy is now uninhabitable a dead zone <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe you should have wrapped that in something. Yeah, a, a cloth, some some of your clothes. <laughs> I don't know. Be a be a better spy. Do better. <laughs> the backdrop of the clock tower, though, that's a great scene, right? Yes. This, actually, this whole like, I love the glass museum. I love the clock tower. This is actually this is what I wanted out of Venice. They, like, cut that whole gondola bullshit and just give me <laughs> this. It's so much more powerful. Yeah, it's it's Saint Mark's, which is. The famous square in, in Venice, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, just an absolutely gorgeous location. Bond sneaks into Dr. Goodhead's hotel, where he realizes she's a CIA agent. They agree to work together and then sleep together. Bond sneaks away before dawn. Uh, wait a minute. Does Bond sneak away or does she sneak away? They both sneak away. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Bond... They both sneak. That's so stupid. Basically, <laughs> they they have this conversation where they are agreeing that they're going to work together and then before the sun comes up he sneaks Bo- out of the bed and the second he's out of the bed she picks up the phone and says room get me oh, out of here yeah. Yeah. porter come and get my bags uh-huh. um, so they're both as deceptive as the other which i appreciate like it's not just bond being like oh well i'll lead this lady along and then i shall uh bugger off um she no, is doing the same thing she him. is doing the same thing finally some good. agency in a female character in this film <laughs> uh i you know this is actually my favorite Lois Child's moment in this film. This is where her coolness and her, like, yeah, her character really works for me. That part where uh, they're, like, you know, hugging pre-makeout, pre-sex, and she kind of gives this wink to the camera, like, she's holding her fingers crossed behind her back <laughs> or something. You know, it's very coy, it's sly, it's subtle. I really enjoy that. Uh, and But like I said, if only we had progressed beyond that one-note performance. <laughs> The white backless dress, I mean, that's, come on, absolutely stunning. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Just gorgeous. Yeah, there's some glamour here for sure, and and a lot of it's coming from her. Um, It's worth mentioning that Bond, you know, does do some effective spy stuff here because he breaks into a CIA agent's bedroom without Mm. her discovering uh, him. But he also does just like the creepiest man shit here where he's hiding in the dark and touches her hand when she reaches for the light switch uh and that's how he reveals that that he's there and it's like watching that moment now it was like oh my god dude like we know that there's something wrong with you but this is really wrong yeah yeah (laughs) this this is beyond uh creep level bullshit (laughs) like maybe like I don't know, like, there's the whole thing about someone breaking into a room and then being, like, sexily waiting for them on the bed or something, which is also wrong in real life, but kind of works in a movie. We can forgive that in a film, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, hiding in the dark and touching someone's hand? No, 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 no. No, no, not at all. Like, that is literally a phobia. Like, that is a thing that people are terrified of, for good reason. Yeah, legitimately. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Uh, I like that they have this moment where I, I think I might be, I, I can't remember if this is an actual quote or if I'm paraphrasing, but they look at each other and they're like, detente, agreed. Understanding, <laughs> possibly. Cooperation, maybe. Trust, out of the question. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Uh, and yeah, like I said, she just gets out of there immediately. <laughs> she, she has some lovely, uh, some lovely bags packed. She, yep. Was it, was it Louis Vuitton or? I believe so, yes. Yeah. 
Good for you, love. <laughs> uh, Bond provides M with a sample of the nerve gas and brings him to the factory the next day to expose Drax, only to discover that the lab has disappeared and Drax is smugly waiting for them. I have so many questions <laughs> about how Drax hide, hides that lab. Like, where did it go? Yeah, we should maybe, like, explain or describe, because just to, to describe the scene like that is is so not the scale of the thing like this lab is this huge uh, uh sci-fi yeah like the, it, it's a lab it's a proper full lab like walls vacuum seals <laughs> uh, doors, windows like everything lab rats equipment <laughs> corpses buttons um, there were so many buttons uh and he comes in he, they walk back into what looks like a grand ballroom and it's like rococo like it's antique <laughs> and and it can't possibly like you would have to i guess have built the lab inside this room as like a shell and not affect not touched any of the, <laughs> the stuff that's there and then just broken it down overnight and it yeah it's unintentionally hilarious <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's yeah it's supposed to make drax look like amazing but it kind of makes the whole thing look a little bit too preposterous <laughs> like it maybe there needed to be like the whole thing was on an elevator like a classic like live and let die i mean that's <laughs> that's what i had to do in my mind to excuse right. all of this yeah for sure yeah maybe bond should have just like spotted like one clue that the lab had been there because otherwise it does just like even to us as the audience it looks like he's a crazy person <laughs> like oh you yes, know what he, we I, must well, have imagined he might it. be <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, maybe this whole movie is a Jacob's Ladder scenario, you know? Oh, that, I mean, yeah, he falls out of the plane <laughs> in the beginning and the parachute, he doesn't actually get the parachute and he's the one who plummets to his death. It's all coming together. Oh, uh, it all makes sense. <laughs> So M reprimands Bond for jeopardizing Britain's relationship with this very important industrialist, but unofficially gives him permission to pursue Drax to Brazil. So we are once again in Bond is off the books territory. Correct. Um, I, I think this is actually one of those effective scenes where, like, again, you know, Grant, Bond's greatest hits where he's being reprimanded and then told to go off on a secret mission. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I don't know. I think maybe they knew that this was Bernard Lee's, uh, last film. And so there's a bit of weight to the interaction that he and Roger Moore have because there's only a couple of times where they speak to each other. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't know. I felt like in this scene in particular, it felt like there was, you know, mutual trust and understanding. And it looks like they did film some of that scene in Venice, which means they, that, that he did get to fly out to Venice, which is nice. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> a little vacation. Yeah. I mean, M doesn't usually go anywhere. so That's, you know, that's right. That's right. Very rare. Maybe that was a nice little boondoggle to, to send him to, to Venice for a couple of days. Oh, how lovely. Uh, in Rio, Bond meets up with local station agent Manuela. Bond uses the carnival as cover to investigate the building that Drax sent his shipments to, but only finds evidence that the equipment has been moved again via air freight. Manuela is attacked by Drax's new assassin, Jaws, but Bond returns in time to save her, and Jaws is swept away by revelers. Right. How? Well, there's... <laughs> how? How is there's a, Jaws there's a lot still to talk alive? About. Yeah, <laughs> like that paragraph is the entirety of Manuela's presence in this film. We should say for one. Oh thing, yeah, right? yeah. She shows up and then she has this one confrontation with Jaws and then never seen or heard from again. And it's a great part. Like she, she's she's one of the few Bond women who doesn't die. So yeah. you kind of want some some satisfying ending 
to it all. But yeah, uh, it would be nice, kind of, to have her f- go with him to to like the lab. Like she's in Brazil. The rest of the movie takes place in Brazil or space. And, you know, it's like she she could almost have replaced uh, Lois Giles at this point in the movie, and and I think I would have liked that. Absolutely, of course. You know, now that you've said that, I mean, this is a brown woman, brown woman in a Bond film. She yes. probably would have died before yes. they got in that, <laughs> that shuttle. <laughs> Uh, yeah, she, they would have left her behind in the meeting room and she would have been flambéed or something. So. Uh, yes, yeah, so it's nice that Manuela lives um, yes. and survives really a terrifying confrontation because Jaws is really horrifying in this scene, dressed in this clown costume. Like, it, it plays into his, his character very effectively. And he's trying to, you know, crush her neck with his metal teeth. Oh, yeah, um, really, really dark. Um, and how- she's so small and he's so big that, like, it's it's... It's quite effectively scary, but but the action is not effective, I think. No, I, I agree. Uh, first of all, that creepy-ass clown head that's following Bond and Manuela, how would they not immediately be like, <laughs> hmm, maybe we should investigate this further first. Right. Uh, that man is 12 feet tall. Who could have yeah. <laughs> uh, Once again, in this scene, I feel like Moore's Bond is just such a predator. When he comes upon Manuela, he like immediately forces himself on her. Um, but I mean, oh, just to talk about Manuel a bit more. She's so gorgeous, and I love her flowy white outfit that's tied around her white bathing suit with just, like, this blue sash tying it all together. Really fantastic. I also absolutely love her carnival outfit. She looks so good in that floral print. Uh, (laughs) speaking of carnival, there's so many shirtless dancing young men in that crowd, (laughs) and there's just a very queer energy in Brazil in general. I especially like the fact that it's maybe the only <laughs> the only time we see drag that's maybe performed by a, a someone that wants to do drag in this oh yeah in this Bond franchise because otherwise it's like Blofeld or the the Russian colonel right. like disguising themselves as women but here we actually have like there's this very heavily mustachioed man in quite bad drag but uh, but uh, <laughs> yep you're, he's you're committed right. to it <laughs> and, and it was just lovely to see that like uh, the, these moments of as you say queerness in the crowd and this this energy um yeah really fabulous. this this like you said this is a short paragraph but this is kind of one of the better scenes in the film i think uh yeah yeah, it's like really fun and it's this feels like Bond. He's he's spying, he is investigating like like he's discovering the plot instead of the plot discovering him, which is a nice change. <laughs> um yep. there's gen- genuine danger and terror in Joss's confrontation. The the Bond woman is beautiful and actually has something to do and she tries to defend herself. It's all really really good stuff and I don't know, it's this is why this movie is both good and bad, right? There's, there's so much that could have been done with this. Yeah. Before we leave uh, poor Manuela alone, I, I do want to quickly mention that there is, there's a, definitely a gay in that hotel at the start where we first meet Manuela and she's making, uh, making the martini. Uh, Roger Moore's Bond is shown to his room by a very ethical Oh, man. yes, yes, yes. Uh, yes, you're 100% right. Roger Moore's not, uh, not giving the time of day. Of know, course not. It's a very, it feels very of the time. Like this man is camp and femme and I am going to sneer at him and roll my eyes as soon as he walks away. Um, and I think it's worth calling that out. Meanwhile, who's the biggest stiff in this town? Like <laughs> the only person dressed in a tux during carnival, except, <laughs> except for, uh, Michael G. Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least when Daniel Craig goes to a, a carnival, he puts on like a, a 
cool skull mask thing. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and uh, one of Bond's greatest hits is that immediately upon arriving in Rio, he's chased around by someone who's trying to get his photograph, just like Annabelle Chung in the very oh, first yeah. Bond movie, Dr. No. That's true. Uh, so after the carnival, Bond visits Sugarloaf Mountain to spy on the air freight operation, and he again runs into Dr. Goodhead. As the pair descend in the cable car, they are attacked by Jaws. Again. again. <laughs> Bond and Goodhead leap to safety as Jaws crashes into the cable car station. Jaws is rescued by a young blonde woman with pigtails. Her name is Dolly. And there is an immediate attraction between the two of them as Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet score plays <laughs> in the background. Uh, well, <laughs> for, let's go back a little bit first. You know, you just know that they wanted their set piece to involve Christ the Redeemer <laughs> somehow. But the government was like, no fucking nope. way. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a stunning location, like one of the best of all time, I yeah. think, because just the views from, I mean, I've never been to Brazil and this movie really made me want to go to see yeah. Sugarloaf Mountain. Um, like I looked up these cable cars. They're like a hundred plus years old. There have been cable cars. Um, and when you look at like the, the range that they're covering and the height of them, that's extraordinary engineering. Obviously the ones from a hundred years ago are not the ones that were in this film, but the ones that were in this film were not like particularly new either and they're not the ones that are there now um oh thank views... god i was very worried that you were going to say <laughs> that they are still using those hundred year old cable cars <laughs> no they, they they uh maybe the same cables who knows <laughs> oh, that makes me nervous i mean there's no way you're not going to be like scared going up that thing a little bit no. at least like it's but that's part of the thrill i mean it's it's amazing and there is something about seeing the this these parts of the world mm -hmm. through this 70s lens that makes everything feel so glamorous and you're like if yeah. i were to go there now it would not look or feel the way it does in this movie no no certainly not but although i mean brazil still one of the most uh rio certainly one of the most exciting cities in the world so yeah maybe not now May maybe we give it a little time for covid to subside but but it's definitely worth thinking about a trip in the future. Right now, going to the Shoppers Drug Mart is the most exciting place in the world for me. Like, yes, I mean. <laughs> that's as far as I go. <laughs> <laughs> so this fight on the cable cars. Yes. It, am I wrong? It looks awful, right? Oh, you're not wrong. <laughs> Even though they are clear, like there are clearly stunt people doing this work on the cable cars. Even though a stunt person literally nearly fell to his death, it. Like, it just looks so cheap. I feel like you can see the wires through the yeah. entire thing. Everyone is just moving so slowly. <laughs> and yet, and yet, the stunt workers look like they're struggling less than the <laughs> actors who are doing all of this on a green screen. Yeah. There's the moment where Jaws is standing on one cable car and is supposed to jump to the other cable car, where Richard Keel basically just does this little hop up oh in the Oh my air. god. And then they <laughs> cut to the, to the actual stunt. Oh, it's so... <laughs> it's so bad. Hilarious. <laughs> uh, and the, like, when he bites the cable, it's literally licorice, and it just, it all looks really, really cheap. It's, it's sad, because this could be really fun. This is one of those scenes that could have been iconic. And, yeah. and, you know, I mean, sure. Memorable, I guess so. When you think of this movie, you probably first think of space lasers, but I don't know. This is <laughs> one of, I guess, the more memorable set pieces in this film, but looking back on it today, ugh, no Yeah, it, it has aged pretty poorly, and yes, the, the, just the fight choreography is, 
so subpar for like like a YouTube video would not yeah. have this bad. I, I, mean, I say that there's some amazing people making YouTube videos. So Incredible work. I, I shouldn't even joke. <laughs> they, they this wishes it were YouTube. <laughs> uh, shall we get into Dolly? Yeah, it's strange. Because I know you have opinions. I hate it. I <laughs> first, why the fuck doesn't she have braces? Like it. That should be their thing. He should have metal teeth, and she should have braces. Are you aware of the Berenstein Bears uh, controversy around this? That we all remember to her, her to have braces, yes. but she actually doesn't. Yeah, I think I do remember that. Um, and I guess that is where this criticism comes in. But uh, like, it's logical, right? I mean, yes. we all remember it that way because that's what it should be. That is the joke that should that have is been the joke. made. And they, in all of the, like, this is the most expensive Bond film made at this point that they forgot to include like fake braces on this little girl <laughs> is crazy. <laughs> I mean, did they is that what you think that they that they like meant to do that joke? Well, no, of course not. No. They didn't <laughs> mean they were all so hot. They were all so coked out that they were just like trying <laughs> they were just trying to get to Rio before the coke ran out. Yeah, because even like the moment where she sees him and then she slowly breaks into a smile, it's like like it's, it should be right there. there. It's <laughs> set up for it. And the so, music, yeah, so, the Romeo and Juliet, like they found each other. Uh, and um, it's, in fed, instead, it's just a joke about his height, which like we get it. You've been doing that for two movies now. Yeah, and the fact <laughs> that yes, she she is beautiful and petite, and and yeah. he is uh, this monstrous giant figure. Yeah, I can see why you don't love it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, now. I want your take. <laughs> I don't like the choice, but I kind of like, I like giving Jaws this love interest, like just giving a hench person something other than killing Bond to do in a film, mm-hmm. yeah. falling in love. Like, I kind of like that. And I like <laughs> Dolly. Like, I think she's, she's like, she's a super cute uh, yeah. character. Um the, the actress Blanche Ravalac, uh, mm-hmm. I looked her up to see how she's doing. She is, of course, a French woman of a certain age, so she is still gorgeous. <laughs> of course. Um, she is this still like, she's now like an ash blonde who probably smokes cigarettes and never feels any, any kind of, uh, detriment to her health. Yes. <laughs> just, just lives a f- fabulous life in France and, and I want to drinking be wine Blanche and eating Ravalac, cheese. You know? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> So, uh, so, so love to Blanche. Um, and yeah, there's like, there's a version of Dolly that I think I really just enjoyed and, and in my head could see this character being something great. And so I think as a kid, I thought this was cute. And I still, there's part of me that still is like, it's nice that Jaws meets someone. I like what you've said about a uh, henchman having something to do other than hench. I agree. That is important. It adds a little bit of, you know, fun diversity to the roles that these movies have. Um, and yeah, we so rarely get to see that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, for me, it's just the, the execution is on par with the rest of the movie, which yeah. is to say that, you know, we're struggling here. I guess the question is, are we on their side or are we laughing at them? You know what? By the end of the movie, I'm on their side. Even though I shouldn't be. Even though, like, <laughs> look, I hate everything about it, but I'm still on their side. <laughs> but we will get there. Uh, I think the real kicker is that there's just too much 7-Up at the end of this scene <laughs> for me to take anything seriously. The decision to just have these giant 7-Up painted signs and just, like, point the camera at them, basically, is, like, it's a choice. Like, there's a lot of choices. There's so many choices. Why, <laughs> why wasn't it Heineken? I don't know. I just, I have questions. 
Uh, Bond and Goodhead are captured by fake paramedics who chain them to gurneys in an ambulance. Bond and Goodhead flirt with the goon while Bond makes his escape, abandoning Goodhead. I had to rewatch this scene a couple of times because I'm like, wait, where is she? That's what I thought. <laughs> and when, when I saw that in the notes, I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did I forget? <laughs> yeah, I totally forgot. What an asshole. They just like, they really just like gloss over it because we don't see her again until, until the base. So she's been in Drax's captivity this whole time from here until the end of the movie basically and he doesn't bring it up no nope. he doesn't doesn't care he doesn't, does like, not give a shit he doesn't glance back really at the ambulance like he's he has left her in the villain's clutches and and didn't even really seem to make an effort to do anything about it sure he like he gets dropped out of the back of an ambulance in the gurney and rolls down a hill like that's that's not ideal but like he he was escaping he knocked this person like there was every opportunity to save her as well and yeah. he didn't do it she even looks at him with desperation in her eyes like what are we going to do now and he's yeah. like i don't know see a piece <laughs> <laughs> it turns out my gurney has this little slip thing that i can just get the ropes around which is pretty crappy yeah follow, <laughs> follow my lead any, any like oh god such a jerk we do have a queer Bond moment here that we did not include in our countdown, I think because we had both completely forgotten about it. <laughs> Clearly. Um, but yes, Bond literally winking and flirting with the, the guy holding them prisoner. It's a very strange moment, basically. The, the two of them are trying to get the guard's attention so that each of them can... I don't know what the plan was. I guess it's just he's trying to escape, and so she's trying to distract him. But then yeah. he, look, when he looks at Bond, Bond, I guess, is trying to disgust him, so he looks back at the woman? I, I don't is understand the what the plan was. <laughs> I, I, may, I, I don't know, maybe he was just flirting with him, Andrew? I, I don't think that this was a pro-queer <laughs> moment. I think this was an anti-queer <laughs> moment. I think you're right. <laughs> we get another billboard ad. Yeah, uh, We get two. There's one for 7-Up as they're driving up. And then this <laughs> very strange gag at the end with the British Airways lady who is smoking a man-sized cigar. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't understand. I, I, I guess the joke is that he's supposed to look like a cigar. I, I, I don't understand. The joke is that British Airways paid a lot of money for them to put a joke in here, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. And they said, All right, we'll take the money, but we're not going to work very hard on this. <laughs> like, were billboards new in the 70s? Like, why? I know that they weren't. I'm, I'm saying that. But I know that we've had, like, painted signs through the Victorian era. But, like, just, there's so much use of billboard advertising in this film. It's so strange. Yeah, very bizarre. Bond visits Q's Brazilian weapon development facility. Q reveals that the source of the nerve gas toxin is a rare orchid. And talk about Bond's greatest hits, knowing way too much about something incredibly <laughs> obscure. How on earth does he look at that formula and recognize it as the chemical formula for a plant? He's too smart. <laughs> he is both too dumb in this movie and way too smart. It is not a good mix. Uh, we get a nod, another musical nod, this mm -hmm. time to The Magnificent Seven. Why? Uh, I'm not sure, other than he's, you know, on horseback. Yeah, like, is there a connection to The Magnificent Seven and Brazil? Like, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. think so. I've never seen The Magnificent Seven, so maybe <laughs> I'm not the one to ask. I did write The Magnificent 007, which I thought you was did. a cute joke. <laughs> <laughs> It's certainly a joke. Um, <laughs> I think I'm just all joked out at this point in the film. Oh, because yeah. It's all this jokes. Is the 
fourth musical sting gag in the film. We, we have 2001, we have Close Encounters, we have Romeo and Juliet, and now we have The Magnificent Seven. And it's like, what, was this a thing? Was this something that they thought was brilliantly funny that they were all like cracking up? Like, let's have another musical motif moment. Like it just. I honestly think so. And they've, e- they've even forgot, like, they're so not good at comedy that they can't remember the rule of threes. Like, they couldn't pick <laughs> just three good sci-fi themes and stick to it. Right. So strange. Yeah, no, they threw in a, a Western and, and a ballet. And it's like, okay, this is a lot. <laughs> uh, there's a, a funny recurring gag with Money Penny that I didn't recognize at first. Um, but at the beginning of the film, uh, after he falls out of the plane without the parachute, uh, he says, you wouldn't believe where I've been if I told you. And he does the same thing here. Where have you been? You wouldn't believe me if I told you. Uh, and yeah, you know, they, they, so they, they got some comedy, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I watched the film three times in the last month, and I didn't. Notice and you didn't it, even so. notice that. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> very subtle. <laughs> well, well done, guys. <laughs> Speaking of um, subtle, balls cue bolos double oh seven. <laughs> yeah. So we get this whole scene here with the uh, Q likes to create weapons that are. I don't know, ethnic gags? Oh, um, no. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> he likes to take a thing from the local culture and turn it into a bomb or whatever. It's like it's... Yeah, that it's sounds very, pretty... Uh, that sounds very British, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is this is one of those things where as a kid I was like, this is hilarious and I love it and mm-hmm. it's so weird and wacky. And now as an adult, I'm like, who is this for? And then I'm remembering, oh, it's for me when I was 12. Yep, exactly. <laughs> this is a kid's movie. This is yeah. not an adult James Bond film. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, good. A laser that can melt wax. Uh, I'm glad that we have this <laughs> weapon in the canon now. That they shoot the laser and it melts what is obviously a wax head. That they didn't try to approximate a human head. That... When they do use these lasers later, we don't see it do anything like this. They just get hit by it and die instantly, apparently. (laughs) What a strange weapon. What were they thinking? They were thinking, we want to have lasers in this Mm, Yeah, no, that's exactly what they were thinking. That is. (laughs) So, uh, kitted out with new tech, I guess, maybe. Does he actually get any new gadgets here? Uh, The laser, Uh, I suppose. and And the boat. So, yeah, Bond travels out to the Amazon by boat, um, which you have to do, it is a river, uh, to the area where the orchid grows. He is attacked by Drax's men and Jaws. A boat chase ensues and Bond evades Jaws by using the hydrofoil concealed in the boat to fly over a waterfall (laughs) and Jaws plummets to his death, obviously. (laughs) Imagine, if only... And gets to do another great mug to camera as he uh, as he plummets. So many mugs to camera in this scene. <laughs> Literally every shot is him mugging about something. Whether he's <laughs> shooting the gun or, you know, looking over the edge. Oh, this is... There's a lot of Jaws. There's just too much <laughs> Jaws. Maybe another Chitty Chitty Bang Bang reference here because of the uh, hydrofoil wings <laughs> yes. coming out of the, the boat. Uh, it certainly looks familiar. Yes, it certainly does. Um, I wish that the 007 theme would get more use in the movies still. I kind of love it, even if it is a little dated. You know, that classic da 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 Yeah, why not use the theme that does belong to your movie rather than the themes from all the other movies? You have so much intellectual property to work with. <laughs> uh, and yeah, another, like, this is all Bond's greatest hits still, but getting a boat chase in the bayou or the jungle again. 
My biggest question about Drax's, uh, Drax's base is why he needs to build it where the flowers are, because flowers are quite portable. <laughs> maybe, maybe the poison is only effective, like, at the site, uh, Andrew. Come on. He's gonna launch Str- it into the atmosphere. It better not just be effective at the site. <laughs> Uh, for for harvesting, I oh, mean. Oh, of course. okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It all makes sense. Look, this movie, it requires you to take some logical leaps <laughs> that you might not otherwise have taken. Off a waterfall. Uh, off a waterfall, yes. Out of a plane. <laughs> oh, there is a lot of leaping in this film. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm beginning to think that the whole heights thing might actually be the unifying thing about this film. Like, there's the heights in the cable car yeah. and the height at the start of the film, literally the height above the earth. Uh, there's just a lot of falling back down to the earth. Jaws and Dolly, the height difference. Yeah, yeah, it's all about it's heights. Yep. I think I, we broke, we broke it down. We figured <laughs> it out. I guess we can just stop here. Great. Perfect. Um, all right. Well, great movie. See you next time on Kiss Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't said my part, so we're not officially over yet. Um, Aha! <laughs> That's the veto. <laughs> and also, we're about to get into part of the film that I really like, which is uh, ah. Bond discovers the secret base populated by beautiful women in white robes. Um, mm-hmm. He is plunged into a pool and must fight and kill an anaconda. I mean, this honeypot trap <laughs> in the middle of a jungle is wild. It's just wild. Uh, it is kind of great, though. Like, all of these, like, uh, beautiful women in these, these silly mm. white robes, who, as you say, like, are all the women that we have met in the rest of the film, um, yes. all part of the space mission. Um, and they are, it strikes me as especially 70s that half the women look like they're from the 60s and the other half look like they're from the 80s. <laughs> but no one looks like they're from the yeah, 70s. It was like there was some style <laughs> choices going on there that I, that I mixes it up beautifully. But my biggest question though is where are the guys? Where are the fellas? Sh- where are the hot guys? It is literally the point of this film that for every babe there is a hunk. So. Why aren't we getting the hot dudes in, in like tight white t-shirts at this stage or throughout the, the damn movie? Right? They are just so afraid of male sexuality if it isn't coming from James Bond. Yeah. And guess what? He ain't very sexual in these <laughs> later, but more films. He is not, which is why I really love the way that when he's being killed by the anacondas, the anaconda, uh, the women are all just, just coolly watching, just standing around oh, yeah. like Stepford wives as he struggles and dies. And it's like, it's this unintentional feminist moment, I think, where it's like, you know what? Women everywhere would like to watch James Bond yes. die <laughs> by his own anaconda. Uh, yeah. The disappointment in their faces when he kills that thing is incredible. Yeah. Um, another of Bond's greatest hits is, you know, emerging into a room filled with sexy, mindless fembot drones. <laughs> yes. I, I will give a shout out to this it's stunning base, this, this like Aztec temple, mm. uh, plants everywhere. Obviously it's a jungle, uh, but it did make me think that maybe Drax is a plant gay. Um, because oh, I have friends, I have friends whose Instagram feeds look quite similar to, uh, yes, to this absolutely. Base. <laughs> uh yes i i see that for sure this is also like one of the best levels in the golden eye 64 oh. game um yes uh i mean it's rendered down into barely recognizable <laughs> but uh but it's all there if you know what to look for um do does it have a platform that springs you into a pool with an anaconda uh it does not <sighs> but you can wear these fancy yellow jumpsuits oh good <laughs> <laughs> they are so bright uh, so yellow they 
Let's talk about it. Jaws takes Bond prisoner. Drax explains that he stole back his own Moonraker shuttle to replace one with a fault. I mean, I stole my own <laughs> rocket because I needed it back. It is the most weak-ass so supervillainy of all time. It's like, well, it's my rocket, so I stole it. Like, it's your rocket. <laughs> just you did. You could have just kept it. <laughs> you know what, government? I'm not going to give you this rocket. <laughs> You're planning to kill all life on Earth. Like, it's not like you need to worry about offending anyone. So it turns out that the whole plot is about sterility. Yes. And honestly, the fact that sterility is the greatest threat to these two men, <laughs> I 100% buy it. Yeah. It's such a, it's tr- such a straight person problem, right? <laughs> right. Like, I guess it's kind of the problem that affects all of us. But at the same time, like, you know, we can make babies and vials at this point. Yeah. We can clone things. Uh, keeping the human race going is a problem of the past. <laughs> so, some of us, this is like, go on. Some of us were like 13, 14 when we realized that, oh, I'm probably not going to have a baby. Like, that's, that's just a thing. And, and you know what? There are, there's other things you can do with your life. Uh, there, yeah, there are worse Life things. does go on. Yeah. <laughs> not having a baby. I will say this set again, beautiful, like the lab set, the interior set, yeah. really stunning. Um, and that the use of the orchid suspended in a plastic bubble hanging from the ceiling is just like beautiful accent piece. I want that. I mean, I kind of want that in my own yeah. home, right? Yeah. That should be Gorgeous. available at Ikea. Yeah, I'm sure it is actually. <laughs> Bond is placed in the blast zone of a space shuttle with Dr. Goodhead. She's back. She is back. (laughs) And Drax launches the Moonrakers. They escape using an explosive concealed in Bond's watch. Yeah. Okay, so why did they build a meeting room underneath the rocket launch pad? Just to terrify everyone he works with, I suppose? Maybe. Like, that they could go at any time? Like, that's the first thing that health and safety is going to crack down on, is like, this is a stunning meeting room. Like, the gorgeous, like, mid-century modern design, everything about it, it's like, love it. But that thing above you, that's not a skylight, that's a rocket. (laughs) That's liquid, fiery death. No, you can't put the meeting room here. (laughs) I really want to talk about the novel. We're covering it so soon. But... (laughs) Like, there's a reason for it in the novel, right? <laughs> it's because it's, it's going to destroy all evidence of the, of the plot. There's just no reason given. We're just supposed to accept everything as it is in this movie. And I can't, damn it. They're asking <laughs> too much. And like, that Goodhead and Bond escape through this air vent with, you know, a rocket <laughs> fireball behind them. It's the least most of the unbelievable <laughs> things I guess we've seen about this movie, but just, it still bugs me, damn it. It's one of those things where it's like my brain just shut down. It didn't even process that, like, no, they should have died still. They, they yeah, were not far uh, yeah. enough away. But at this point, they're like <laughs> no. scurrying around the secret base and like finding that what those little go-kart things and, and like the rockets are going off everywhere. And it's suddenly almost exciting. Um, almost. Bond and Goodhead put on spacesuits and board the last of the Moonraker shuttles, which is loaded with Drax's astronaut trainees, as they all are, in breeding pairs um, and flying on a fixed course towards a cloaked space station. Oh, so heterosexual. Breeding pairs. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> yes. Or Adam and Eve, as I think uh, Bond refers to them. Was that his old Garden of Eden? He uses some biblical reference to explain the concept to us of when you have a a man and a woman, etc. Dot, (laughs) dot, dot. dot. 
<laughs> I think he's just figuring it out for himself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, like Adam and Eve. <laughs> why is she doing Drax's paperwork for him on their flight? Like, why is she... <laughs> Goodhead at one point picks up a clipboard with paper and is, like, taking notes. It's like, you know... <laughs> You're you're not there to account for all of these people. You're there to bring this thing down. Yeah. <laughs> right, is she gonna hand that clipboard back to him at some point? Oh, by the way, <laughs> I thought you might want these numbers. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's some kind of a thing that Brand is doing in the book again. So. Oh yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's, it's one of the very few holdovers from the novel <laughs> that they forgot to take out and strip of its goodness. Yeah, have make any sense <laughs> in this context? Um, I want to yeah. know how you recruit all these these people to be part of this, like, genocide plan. <laughs> Are you interested in eugenics? <laughs> Do you want to be part of the Master Race? Come and join us on the space station called Moonraker. Like, do they know what they're signing up for? <laughs> Are they willing participants here? I-, I mean, look, Andrew, we have discovered in the past few years that there is a serious Nazi problem in this world still. <laughs> yes. I am not surprised that Drax was able to find, you know, a few hundred Nazis who were willing to go to space to start the master race it's actually the most believable part of this film if you think about it <laughs> i guess it's just that they're also like like they're non-characters they're not people none of them express anything or say anything or do anything so they all certainly look happy that's true or blissful i get not even happy just blissed out yeah it kind of almost looks like they want a dating show or something like <laughs> they're just holding hands and gazing moonily into each other's eyes if i knew i was going to die out in space i probably would not have uh, submitted my resume <laughs> uh as a side note here does this mean that drax is killing all of the gays because you know if everyone's got to be a breeding pair then there might be some bisexuals in in there of course uh, but it doesn't seem like drax is deliberately bringing any queer people yeah. along with him uh, so who is going to handle his interior design from now on because he loves interior design he has no taste of his own if all the gays are dead it takes years to grow a new one from scratch so uh, what are you doing drax if his whole personality is acquiring things <laughs> yes. and then he goes and destroys everything what left is there to acquire <sighs> so short-sighted. It's so incredible that Drax built this space station without anyone, <laughs> literally anyone, noticing. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, we're okay, we are just gonna move past that. Yes, okay, good. Uh look. Do you want us to like spitball some ideas? <laughs> <laughs> I just need to know for myself because it involves heavily in my plans for the future. Oh. Uh, oh. <laughs> Uh, so I'm a person who loves science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very vocal about that. <laughs> I hate all of this. <laughs> this is just, <laughs> this is just so poorly executed. Is it worse than the Borg? It, it is. Look, <laughs> it is so much worse than the Borg. You can find that on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is. It's offensive science fiction because there's no state. They're not trying to say anything. They're not trying to warn us about anything, I guess, (laughs) other than starting the master race with white people. Which we're doing perfectly well on Earth, you know. Yeah, exactly. We have enough of that worry in real life. We don't need that in our science fiction. Yeah, it, it does make it awkward as well that there are so many incidental hotties here because... Yeah, yeah, love the sexy moon citizens and their white outfits. <laughs> but also, like, they're part of a eugenics project, so that makes it feel a little bad, like... <laughs> it's a little icky, these feelings, I'm not gonna lie. Oh, these people are hot. Yeah, they're meant to be hot, they're there to replace you, and... uh yeah. <laughs> Not in a QAnon way, but, like... uh Actually, they're going to kill everyone way. 
replacing you. <laughs> like they're literally <laughs> replacing you. Uh, it's amazing that they figured out gravity. Um, but that uh, like we still haven't figured that out in space yet. But they did in the seventies. That's cool. Yeah, great. Well done, Drax. Yeah. Let's see. Well done. He's very smart. He's very smart. That's how he gets his space station up there without anyone seeing it. Orchids. <laughs> or it all, it was all about the orchids. <laughs> it was, it was orchids all along. Aboard the space station, Bond and Goodhead disable the radar jammer so that the space station will be visible to satellites. The US dispatches Marines to investigate. Straight away. So yes, yeah, space, the fascist frontier. Uh, <laughs> everything in space is slow at this part of the movie yeah. uh, that is supposed to be all fast. Everything in this movie has been fast until this point, and now it is just crawling along. <laughs> it's so insane. Yeah, well, you just have to get the U.S. Space Army up there as quickly as possible. Which apparently takes, like, they mobilize so quickly and they get the space in, like, record timing. Yeah. <laughs> apparently space is right around the corner, so it's fine. I do appreciate a little cameo appearance by General Gogol here, his uh, second appearance yes. in the franchise, but not his last. We love a returning side character. Yeah. It's nice that, like, here he's just, like, it's literally just a cameo, just a phone call, but, like, a little bit of yeah. world building going on. So Jaws captures Bond and Goodhead, and Drax explains to them that his plan is to launch the nerve agent into Earth's atmosphere from space and wipe out the human population, allowing Drax to repopulate the planet with his genetically perfect master race. It's such a stupid plan. <laughs> he doesn't... He just doesn't have enough people there to sustain genetic diversity at all. Like, they're going to die out as soon as they get back to Earth. Yeah. And they're just going to be so inbred that they'll die out within a few generations, at least. So Drax is super smart, but not in this particular regard, apparently. No, apparently not. <laughs> yeah, Drax is the original Thanos here, uh, which is confusing because his name is <laughs> Drax. Um, <laughs> almost an environmental theme here, but Drax really just leans into the eugenics stuff. Um, like, mm -hmm. there isn't really any talk here about, oh, humans have become a, a blight on Earth, blah, blah, blah. It really just seems to be about his sort of bespoke designer race. And they, it's so close. Oh, my God. <sighs> like, this environmentalist thing, they're so close. It's all about orchids and plants, and he's in the jungle, and he hates people. <laughs> like, yeah, just one line, one little, like, paragraph of dialogue that says, I hate people because of what they've done to the planet, yeah. this beautiful planet, and he lusts over his orchids or something. L oh, my God, I should have been a screenwriter in another life. <laughs> <laughs> Sudden complexity, out of nowhere, like... Oh my God. Right? Your desire to be the first female in space will soon be achieved, he says to <laughs> Dr. Goodhead, who is already in space with other women. All around. Yeah. <laughs> yes, literally. Surrounded by women. She is no longer the first female in space. She wasn't by the time he was there. <laughs> no. The women being in space was pivotal to your whole scheme, Drax. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> um, they're kind of a big deal. It's like they built the plot without actually reading the dialogue that they were writing at the same time it's like they had two different someone was writing the like the gags and the lines yeah. quote unquote and another person was writing what was happening in the background of this film Oof. um still there is some nice set design up here there are some little barbarella touches here and there yes um, once again the sets are what i'm enjoying in this film Oh, yeah, yeah. It's visually appealing. I will say that. I really love the space station look. I even like when they're floating around, like when they first get there and establishing the gravity. It all looks really cool and it does feel futuristic. Uh, you know, even that giant, like, penis-like space laser <laughs> that emerges at one point is kind of cool. Uh, yeah, like, it's a, it's a cool design set. It, it looks great. It's just, 
the problem is the action that happens there is so ludicrous and the wires are so so heavy (laughs) um i'll just make a note shane likes the giant penis okay (laughs) thank you thank you Put that in the show I forgot notes. to put that in my bio. Uh, maybe I should add that. Yeah. Latin chicken switch. Uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Bond pushes Drax to confirm that he does not want any imperfect specimens, and Jaws cottons on that he and his new girlfriend do not meet Drax's standards. He turns on Drax, but is swiftly apprehended. Um, the idea that Jaws is out of place among the genetic super people, but craggy old Roger Moore huffing and puffing about the place is just like seamlessly undercover. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't quite connect with me. A bunch of like 20, 25 year olds running around and <laughs> here comes 70 year old Roger like, <gasps> yeah. yeah, okay. No one's looking at him twice <laughs> like, what are you doing on this ship, old man? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Lois Childs, though, I believe, uh, does absolutely belong. She is equally vacant. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to compliment her looks, but no, her her capacity (laughs) to be a boy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, if all else fails, she could easily just slip in amongst the residents here. (laughs) No one would be the wiser. A US shuttle approaches to investigate the space station, and Drax tries to shoot it down. Bond slams the emergency stop switch, stopping the space station's rotation, throwing off the laser, and sending everyone flying. I must say, when he looks at Molly, he gives this look that's like, Oi, Molly, this headache. It's really hurting. <laughs> hit that button! Hit it now! <laughs> okay, I know where the uh, volume yeah. peak is going to be on your recording for this episode. Thank you, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it was such an absurd transition, like, to get her attention and then be like, ah! ah, ah you, uh. Yeah, I don't think space stations have an emergency brake, uh, but I don't know a lot well, about space, so I don't know. Maybe. I also don't think they have gravity. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the rotation was creating the gravity. Is that what's going on here? Because everyone does like, yes. plummet. Yes, I think that is the uh, that's what we're supposed to believe here. The underwater movement, it's all so cringeworthy. Like, it's like watching, I don't know, my grade 10 drama class pretending to be underwater <laughs> or in space and just like slowly moving <laughs> our bodies. Um, we get to see Space Force, uh, so, you know, this is what Donald Trump's America would have been if we'd allowed it to continue. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> Drax is so Trumpian already that it's sort of like Trump on both sides of this battle. Yes, oh, very true, wow. <laughs> Trump, Trump versus Trump. Can't wait for that. <laughs> Drax dispatches soldiers in spacesuits, and the US shuttle dispatches marines to meet them for a laser gun space battle. Finally. Um, some marines are able to make it inside the space station. There are too many explosions happening inside that space station. <laughs> they are all going to get sucked out into space. Um, it's very Thunderball in space. It's very, mm-hmm. very similar to the end of Thunderball with all the underwater uh, harpoon battle, but it's suddenly it's laser gun space battle. Um, with a little bit of You Only Live Twice with, you know, multiple yeah. uh, space agencies fighting with and against each other. That's true. That's true. Um it, it's not good. <laughs> like it's, no, no, it's no, no, no. Ridiculous. All this green screen stuff, these crappy little special effect lasers. I blame George Lucas for all of this. If he hadn't made Star yeah. Wars, we wouldn't be looking at any of this nonsense. It's so poorly derivative. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, 
anyone seeing this film must be like, okay, so they're trying to do Star Wars here. <laughs> it's too on the nose. Yeah, and I don't think the appeal of Star Wars was space. No, no, it was the story. <laughs> I, I, I think, right? Like, that's what's awesome about it. There are zero astronauts, actually, in Star Like, either everyone is an astronaut or no one is an astronaut in Star Wars. <laughs> that's right. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't work like this. It's not about being an astronaut. There is no hero's journey in this film. No. Because we know the hero, he doesn't need a journey. He just needs to stop a bomb from going off, I guess. But there's no, Bond learns nothing <laughs> in this film. No one learns a goddamn thing about anyone or anything. <laughs> I'm starting to get angry. I'm sorry. The moral of the story. Um, <laughs> So the space station's rotation is restored and Drax successfully launches three of the nerve agents towards Earth. However, the Marines take the space station and Drax attempts to flee. Bond catches up to him, shoots him with the dart gun and ejects him into space. R.I.P. Drax. First of all, I'm not going... You wrote this note, but I'm not going to let us skip by it. All of this stopping and starting of the space station, it is really good that they were all wearing these, like, giant headband, <laughs> like, padded yellow things. Because, my God, the concussions alone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a and it really fascinating style choice to have these giant pads on their heads. I don't know. I guess maybe it was just literally, like, health and safety. They're like, we're not going to do anything about the meeting room under the rocket, but we are going to insist that you pad your heads. <laughs> Yeah, concussions are the leading cause of mental illness in today's <laughs> generation. Oh, Drax getting launched into space, and then Bond meets up with Goodhead after, and she's like, where's Drax? He had to fly. The line and the delivery <laughs> are as bad as the character we're eulogizing. It's just, what a, what a way to go, I guess. I'm not even clear on where Drax thought he was going. Like, was, was there an escape pod over there, or...? Because he just stops, like, when Bond gets close to him, he just stops and turns around. Like, why not just keep going? Where, yeah, what were you like, doing? Where were you going? What was your plan? <laughs> what What was the plan here? Um, oh, I've been saying that about this whole movie. <laughs> but this brings to the end Drax's uh, terrible track record of trying and failing to kill Bond. And if anyone wants to crunch the numbers mm -hmm. on that, I feel like Drax might have the record, but, but maybe not, you know. We'll see as we move through the movies. <laughs> Uh, as the space station falls apart, the Marines evacuate and Bond and Goodhead board a shuttle to pursue and destroy the three nerve agents. They are unable to launch until Jaws forces the release mechanism manually. So this is the end of Dolly and Jaws. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they'll, they'll make it, Andrew. It's only a hundred miles to Earth. They're, they're definitely going to die. They're going to burn up in the atmosphere. This is all so weird. Um, yeah, there's this like doomed romance moment, which is actually kind of like the moment itself, I think is cute of these two people on a space, space station falling apart and they find a bottle of champagne and they drink it together and they can only in that moment think about each other. And it's like, okay, visually that's beautiful. Yeah. But how we got there and the fact that these people are going to die. Does not sit great Crazy. with me. Like, it's pretty no. awful. And the movie does do this weird thing where first Roger Moore is like, oh, yes, they'll... 100 miles, yes, fine. Like, they're in a pod. 
that's being ripped apart. <laughs> like, yeah. There, there's so many jagged edges. So much of it is torn apart. Like, yeah, it is just going to break apart into a million little pieces. Those two are going to be incinerated. I'm sorry. There's no other way. We get a line of dialogue later where someone says, oh, the Marines picked up a, a very tall man and a very small woman from an escape pod or something. And it's like, oh, okay, yes, they survived. No, they didn't. <laughs> Like, all, the movie is trying to reassure us. This is a Jacob's Ladder scenario. He's uh, Bond is already dead. This is all in his head anyway. <laughs> so Bond really wants Jaws to survive. Well, that kind of makes sense because Bo- uh, Jaws dies and then survives so many times in this It's film. true. It's true. Uh, Bond and Goodhead destroy the nerve agents with a laser before they can enter Earth's atmosphere. This is... <sighs> so boring it's so boring like there's just no sense of urgency like neither of them cares if (laughs) the earth lives or dies they're just like casually trying attempting to shoot these things down even when it's like oh we might not make it they're like i just gave more urgency than either of them (laughs) did in that scene (laughs) low child straining to raise an eyebrow it's like (laughs) <laughs> and it's just like the bad special effects like the atari screens that are running on these computers oh, yeah. it's just like it's literally we're watching someone play like an arcade game very poorly. where was the direction like where was where was lewis gilbert saying give us something give us anything <laughs> Uh, but no, it's just this very slow, boring, like, oh, we'll find first one, shoot it, find the second Pew. one, shoot it. Pew. Oh, and there's a third one. Oh, we might not shoot it Pew. in time. Uh, oh, I'll take off the automatic. And it, oh, for God's sake, this takes ages to get through. Oh, yeah. And is not exciting because we know they're not going to kill everyone on Earth. <laughs> oh, imagine. Honestly, that would have been the better ending for this film. That would have been a swing. Well, we failed our mission, but we're going down together or something like yeah. that. <laughs> I would explain why she sleeps with him at the end, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Nothing left to do but. <laughs> On which note, Bond and Goodhead make love aboard the shuttle, observed by NASA, MQ, the White House, and Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Because obviously these weird voyeuristic endings of the Bond movies are like a trope at this point that I don't understand. Yeah, we we love everyone in these organizations uh, <laughs> having to suffer sexual assault by witnessing Bond having sex repeatedly. I mean, the Queen has been through so much recently and she had to do, <laughs> deal with this as well. Poor woman. <laughs> Poor Liz. <laughs> I mean, though, is it one of the best coital uh, closing lines in bond films i think maybe go on what deliver it deliver it i think he's attempting re-entry sir (sighs) (laughs) i mean yes okay it is good but i resent it (laughs) yes of course we resent it it does it uh you know it's just the most ludicrous way to end one of the most ludicrous (laughs) films in the canon only to be outdone by the closing theme (laughs) which is of course the disco remix of moonraker by shirley bassey Yeah. You know, as I said, I've watched this film like three times in the last month. And every time <laughs> suddenly Disco Moonraker kicks in, and I'm like, oh. And I get excited, right? I get excited. This is delightful. <laughs> I love it. 
<laughs> Should have been the opening too. Uh, yeah, I need to like get a copy of Disco Moonraker because I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a film! What a My journey. God, I can't believe we did it. Let's let's talk about our highlights of the film. What was it for you? The sets for me, I'm going to say, especially that Amazon uh, laboratory evil base uh set just like some really stunning uh design which has always been one of the strengths of the uh the franchise but i think yeah these are some of the standouts what about you i really love the fight with cha in the glass museum uh i think it's really fun it's tense uh it's unique for a bond film still great actor in cha and yeah, it's, it's just super fun. I think it's the most entertaining part of this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also really, really enjoy Manuela and Rio and that whole scene as well. Uh, I think those are the two most successful parts of this film. I think in Manuela, we have found your Miss Taro. Um, yes, I, I think so. I almost went a whole episode not mentioning Miss Taro, so I'm glad I could slip her in here. <laughs> yes, I'm sure she's glad too. Uh, what about the lowlights? Oh, well, there's a lot to choose from. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but it's gotta be the end. That space fight is just so bad. It looks so bad. It's so ludicrous, even for Roger Moore's James Bond. Yeah, it's stupid. But also that, that very final thing of them, spa- they're shooting orchid bombs with a space laser. And that sounds like such a cool thing. It should be so fun. And it is the most boring, <laughs> so boring. piece of cinema. But also, I'm going to give a shout out to the stupid music sting jokes all the way through the movie. <laughs> and just the way Jaws jumps across the cable car. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> uh, spoiled for choice here. Um, however, uh, you know, there are... Uh, some great fashion highlights in this movie. Mm-hmm. I will say, I there's I have a bunch of them. Uh, Molly's uh, flowy black CIA outfit, uh, man, both of Manuela's outfits, yeah. her floral print and her white bathing suit covered in a white uh, robe tied with a blue slash sash. I love all of it. Uh, I'm a big fan of Corinne's uh, what I called her slutty Star Trek outfit. I'm surprised really yes. that you didn't call that one out because I, you're the Star Trek. I, guy. I'm. Honestly, when you when you said that, uh, <laughs> you took my breath away. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's very chic. It's maybe the best thing to come out of Corinne's uh, presence in this film because, yeah, she doesn't get a good ride otherwise. Um, but also no. the the blazer polo combo in uh, in Roger Moore's first scene in the movie and that that was pretty chic. Yes, and that is kind of how I envision uh Bond when I think of Roger Moore, yeah. no? That's kind of that's kind of the iconic Roger Moore style. Absolutely. Uh queerest moment. There are surprisingly some here that that neither of us were expecting, I think. Agreed. So I mean, you know, it's cheeky and it's Maybe it's more anti-queer <laughs> than it is queer, but Bond does wink at that henchman in the ambulance. He does. And uh, I'm just, yeah, I'm going to say that's pretty queer. But in actual queer stuff, I mean, Carnival, yeah. that that whole scene feels super queer to me. And, of course, the disco remix of Moonraker. How How could that not be a queer moment in this film? Love it. Um, shout out to the gay working at the hotel in Rio, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. But for me, the queerest thing is that it, this movie has introduced into my lexicon the phrase chicken switch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which we are, we are going to use so often in the future. I'm going to make even it a know thing with you. What it means, but chicken switch. It's, I, it's, it's queer culture. <laughs> it works, damn it. 
<laughs> uh, what was the sexiest moment in this movie? I'm going to go first. I'm going to say should. that. It, uh, because there's only one sexy moment in this one. film, right? <laughs> yes. Like, there's some sexy people, but the only sexy moment is Bond arriving at Drax's temple facility and seeing all of those perfect, beautiful women wearing white. I guess. It's stunning. It, it's gorgeous. Yeah. It sticks in the memory. It reminds me of British uh, listeners will know the old Flake commercials, Cadbury's Flake, um, which were always about beautiful women eating a chocolate bar like they were giving a blowjob. That was literally Very strange. the point of the ads. <laughs> um, and yes, this sort of evokes that. It is the only thing sexy about this entire movie. And the fact that there are all these strapping men in tight white t-shirts and we don't spend equal time with them as we do with the ladies is criminal. It's homophobic. It is. Yeah. It is. <laughs> Um, best line or gag? We both have very clear answers on this one. Yes, mine is gag. Uh, I went for <laughs> attempting re-entry. I, I don't know. I stand by it. Well delivered. I respect the choice. And uh, I went with see that some harm comes to him. Just one of the, the great Bond villain, uh, payoff lines. It's true. It's true. That is actually a very good line. I will stand behind that one. It's better than mine. <laughs> Uh, hmm. Now, what was the most timeless or relevant moment about all of this for you, Andrew? Well, we are still doing overpopulation villain plots in our movies, um, so that seems relevant. But fretting about overpopulation in real life, when the actual problems that we're facing is distribution of resources, um, mm -hmm. it's something that, that, you know, we should be talking about. When we talk about overpopulation as a problem... It's always going to lead to eugenics. Like those two things just go together. Overpopulation equals eugenics. So this movie actually gets that right. The fact that Drax is a eugenicist, um, and that's his response to overpopulation. Yeah. Yeah. There are people that think that way. Wow. It's so strange that they're on the right side for <laughs> once. The... <laughs> right. The, the villain is bad. Hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> honestly, it's just so rare that I actually agree with the motivations of our hero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what for you was the uh, the most timeless moment or relevant? Uh, you know, I I wrote this kind of with the novel really fresh in my mind, uh, and so I kind of want to save what I actually wrote here for another discussion. But something that we talked about uh, is kind of the Donald Trump of it all, <laughs> uh, and. Yeah, the Drax being kind of this, uh, you know, populist, uh, like you said, eugenicist. Uh, yeah, we're, we're still infested with world leaders like this who are doing some very slimy shit, like, you know, hoarding resources and making it impossible for countries to get patents for vaccine, looking at you, Bill Gates, yeah. uh, slave labor, looking at you, Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, making money off of slavery and your dad's uh, diamond or emerald mine, looking at you, Elon <laughs> Musk. So uh, there's, yeah, the rich people doing bad things uh, and being irredeemable, that will never not be timeless. Yeah, that checks out. <laughs> I will note that you wrote Elon Muskiness in the notes, and that is going to stick with me. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's Elon certainly an muskiness? Elon Muskiness. Ooh. Yes. Really ugh, ugh. <laughs> God, can you believe that, I mean, of course, Saturday Night Live invited him to host... <sighs> Oh, God. I, I really hope that the cast is kind of having a fit about that. Like, how dare they do that to us? And didn't Donald <laughs> Trump host, though, at one point? So 
Exactly. Uh, I mean, maybe it's Lorne Michaels, or maybe it's just NBC that makes sure that every five, six years they have a host who unites <laughs> us in our hatred for both the host and SNL. Oh, you know, God. it's rare. <laughs> like, at least the, the criteria for time person of the year are clear, that it doesn't have to be a good person. But hosting SNL, I feel like, <laughs> maybe should have a better moral value. <laughs> right? Like, if you don't have a movie to promote, or if you if your team didn't just win, I don't know, the sports ball tournament of the <laughs> whatever, then just don't be a host. <laughs> so we know what the cringiest moment of SNL is going to be. What's the cringiest right. moment of Moonraker? <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, sorry, tangent. Uh, well, they're once again spoiled for choice. I mean, is it the spacesuits? Is it Dolly and Jaws? Uh, is it the way Bond forces himself on Manuela and Holly? It is all of those things. But for me, uh, I think just the cringiest part is Lois Childs trying to fight sleep throughout the last half of this movie. Yeah, wherever she gets her sleepy time tea from, I want some, because I can't get off. <laughs> it's <easy>. working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How about for you? I'm going to say Kareen being hounded to death. Uh, mm. It's just such a horrifying, uh, you know, the fact they don't show it to you is a good thing, but also leaves your brain to do uh, too much work. All the horrible work, yeah. yeah. I don't want that in my head. Um, no. I didn't like it in Game of Thrones either, and they were doing it to a much nastier person in that. Oh, so true. I hated that scene so much, but so good. Well, I guess it's effective. Like, it is truly a horrible way to die. And, you know, it certainly gives Corinne a spot of infamy in this universe in that I feel really, really bad for her. Yeah, but it does mean that she has this, like, terrible arc of Bond just treating her life as a throwaway Ugh. thing, which I guess brings us to the Vesper list, really. That's, that's exactly what the Vesper <laughs> list is, our, our running tally of women who die in service to advancing James Bond's plot. Um, and Corrine is, I think, the only person who is for sure added to the list here, though many hundreds of women died on that space station, for sure. Oh, for sure. For um, sure, for sure. Like, we didn't get to see anyone escaping other than Bond and Holly. Dolly, Jaws's girlfriend, we're told that she survives, but we don't believe that she survives. Refuse to believe that. Yeah. Um, Manuela, <laughs> we know that she nothing bad happened to her. She just disappeared from the movie. So, Manuela, well done. You did great. Uh, we'd love to see you back. Um, when can you come in? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she'll be in the next one. <laughs> Manuela will return in. <laughs> So yes, Kareen, uh, we will etch your name on the Vespalist memorial wall. Now, how about the travel advisory for this film? Mm-hmm. You know, every film we like to check in to see whether the glamorous locations Bond visits on his adventures give LGBTQ people the sort of freedoms that he takes for granted. Uh, so in Italy, same-sex sexual activity has been legal for over a century, and the age of consent is equal, but alarmingly low at 14. Uh, Same-sex civil unions have been allowed since 2016 under pressure from the European Court of Human Rights. Marriages, however, are still not allowed. Same-sex couples cannot adopt, and there are no workplace discrimination protections at the national level. Gender reassignment surgeries are legal, but one couple had to fight to prevent their marriage from being dissolved against their will when one of them transitioned. Extraordinary story. 
right that that's so crazy the the level of you know interference that these governments think that they can have in our lives yeah. of course it's worth noting that italy is very very catholic i wonder why right um <laughs> that said the other country the other location that we visit brazil is also a majority catholic country and is considerably more evolved on lgbtq issues uh in fact one of the most progressive countries in south america um thanks to a court ruling in favor of same-sex marriage in 2013 and a court ruling expanding anti-discrimination laws in 2019 so worth noting that both of those advances happened in the courts not through the legislature uh joint adoption is allowed in brazil conversion therapy is banned and blood donations by men who have sex with men are permitted which is actually pretty rare around the world so that means they're ahead of us both on conversion therapy being banned which literally only happened what two months ago here in canada or is that even in the works still i'm not sure but like that's how behind we are on that and then the blood donation ban we are still fighting here oh my god crazy so add to that the fact that the weather is lovely and one in ten brazilian men living in cities identifies as gay or bisexual and it sounds like brazil is a wonderful place to to go to and maybe we should head there as soon as covid is over except you have some notes on that point well, yes, I think we should note that Brazil is currently under the leadership of one of the world's most far-right populists, uh, Jair Bolsonaro. The policies that Bolsonaro supports are a direct threat to the safety and well-being of LGBTQ Brazilians. He's known for inflammatory rhetoric against homosexuality, such as, if I see two men kissing in the street, I will beat them, and... Most homosexuals are murdered by their respective pimps at hours when good citizens are already asleep. These are things that he has said to the press. Uh, they are, you know, he's quoted as saying it. He believes it. And I don't know. They like to say that he's turned a new leaf and that he's a bit more progressive now. But I think the color of his character has already been shown. More progressive than saying homosexuals are murdered by their pimps. I mean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He has a journey to take. You know? <laughs> the The bar is pretty fucking low. (laughs) Uh, And we should mention that the deforestation happening in the Amazon under his watch uh, and the the rights of the indigenous peoples that have been taken away to allow for that, uh, this is going to have ecological consequences that will be felt on a global scale in the very near future and for years, decades, and centuries to come. So go enjoy the weather and the gays. But let's continue to fight the fascist forces that undermine everything that is good in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think maybe I will postpone visiting Sugarloaf Mountain until J.A. Bolsonaro is uh, gone for good. That sounds like a great idea. It'll be a celebration. Yeah. It's time for our ratings. We'll each give the movie a score between one and three, and then we'll award bonus points from four categories. Bond, song, glamour, and queerness. The maximum score available is, of course, 007. And we'll start with our base scores. Andrew? Uh, it's a one from me, dog. <laughs> this movie gets a one out of three. Um, yeah, uh, that's right. It is a one. It's <laughs> it. Oh, the pacing is wrong. The acting is horrible. There's a couple of fun set piece action-y moments, but nothing that ties this movie together coherently. I think I remembered it better than it was maybe in this movie's case, but uh, yeah, there's just too... This feels like a a Bond film for nostalgia. Yeah. Like, it, it 
like I mentioned throughout, it just brings up all the greatest hits without actually improving on any of them. Too many missed opportunities. What about the quality of uh, Roger Moore as James Bond? How does Bond fare? I don't think I'm going to give him the point for this one. I've got to be honest. Mm. I mean, I don't know. He has a couple moments where I guess he's spying, but... <sighs> yeah, I, I, I can't... The performance isn't great. Uh, he... Yeah, he doesn't feel like James Bond in this film. Yeah, I agree. I think he's he's not he's not really delivering. Now the song, I absolutely am going to award the point for because how could you not Yay. give a point to Shirley Bassey? <laughs> of course, of course, Shirley Bassey. Immediately, you get a point for Shirley Bassey. It's just the rules. Glamour, though, I don't know which way we're going to jump on this one. I don't even know which way I'm going to jump, and I'm the one that has to say the the thing out loud. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm weighing it in my head right now, too. Uh... The peaks are high in this movie for Glamour. Like, the locations are stunning. Um, Venice and Rio are, like, two of the most beautiful places on Earth, and the film does not skimp on showing us those spaces. Uh, It doesn't show us, like, as as much of them as it could, but it does show us the most beautiful parts of both places. The chateaus are also really gorgeous. Mm -hmm. The interiors are all really well done. The set decoration is fantastic. So, you know what? I am going to give it a glamour point for me. I I think there's enough uh, of a visual feast in that respect that I'm willing to give it this point. Also, at this point in our scoring, I'm very nervous that this is going to land below <laughs> Live and Let Die. <laughs> uh, I think you might be right. <laughs> yeah, the, I'm going to say it does get the glam point for me as well, um, because... Yeah, it it just just passes the bar, I think, because the glamour actually was the thing that I enjoyed the most in this movie. So it must have had yeah. something going for it. There you go. That's a good good explanation. Good reasoning. Queerness. This might just be surface level, and <laughs> maybe one day I'll regret saying this. But if you have a disco remix of your main <laughs> song sung by Shirley Bassey as your end title credits. You're getting the queerness point from me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That disco remix alone. And the camp factor. This is a really, really campy film. And that is inherently queer. So I will give it the queer point. Because they refuse to show us all the hot astronaut trainee dudes in their white t-shirts, I am not giving it the queer points. As you said, it's homophobic. So uh, that means that <laughs> it's three points from me, four points from you. It's another 3.5 movie. It's the same <laughs> score as Live and Let Die. I'm okay with that. These are, <laughs> you know, we're finding 3.5 is about the bottom of the barrel so far. And we've certainly got a lot of, we have three of them of the, what, five movies we've covered? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so here's something that, you know, I proposed in private and I think we should put out there to the public. Maybe we allow ourselves to take a point away from a film. Uh, if something is really egregious, uh, like the racism in Live and Let Die, I think we should be allowed, if we both agree, to subtra- subtract a point from the total. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I can see. I mean, it's a little bit us fiddling our own rules to get the result we want. But at yeah, the same time, yeah. they are our rules and there is no... <laughs> 
governing body um we're just a podcast well we are the governing body I, yeah. <laughs> uh, so as vice president i i think this is a move we should take so yes if we are agreed that a movie needs to have a demerit against it we will deduct one point from the final score that's the that's the motion on the floor and i see a show of hands so motion proved <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see, we'll hear from the uh, listeners if they think that we're just being charlatans. Who, uh, agreed. Agreed. <laughs> playing fast and loose, which you know you'd be right to, to accuse us of. Uh, but let's just <laughs> assume that that of the five movies we've looked at, I don't think we're going to deduct a point from Casino Royale. Doctor No, that's that's a possibility, actually. Yeah, there is some pretty heavy racism in there as well. There is. The world is not enough. I mean, I think that landed right where it needs to be at a three point five. It's fine. It, I think that one, we made reasonable decisions about where it lived. Live and Let Die is the one where we definitely know that we, we're we probably both going to say that needs to lose a point. Because at the moment, I think we it's, have to. it's sitting in the basement with Moonraker and the world is not enough. And that doesn't seem right. No. So should we uh, agree here and now that Live and Let Die is now a 2.5 and the world is not enough and Moonraker sit pretty at 3.5? All right. So mote it be. Next time on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, we'll have our first episode dedicated to a movie heavily inspired by the James Bond franchise. And what better place to start than with the 1997 spy comedy Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery. How Bondy is it? How queer is it? And how good is it? We'll unpack it all in two weeks. And I am so excited. This is a, this is a birthday treat for me because I requested it and Andrew relented. I agreed to it. <laughs> and in four weeks time, we'll be diving into the original Ian Fleming novel, Moonraker from 1955, not the adaptation of the film to, right. to novel. Uh, we are talking about the classic, which is significantly different to the movie. So grab a copy of that book from your local library or independent bookseller. We'll follow that up with another bonus episode where we cast a modern day adaptation of that novel. I'm excited. Um, Me too. Great. You can follow Kiss Kiss Bang Bang on Twitter and Instagram at kkbbpod or send us nice messages at kisskissbangbangpod at gmail.com if you want to correct any of our pronunciations or tell us that we're charlatans for deducting points from Live and Let Die. That is where you send <laughs> those messages, but make them nice. Um, Please. You can follow our individual Twitter accounts at Wheeler and at Shane Came Back. Please share, like, rate and review Kiss Kiss Bang Bang on your preferred podcasting and social media platforms. It really helps people find the show our graphics are provided by the rapturously talented Carl Schurer you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Carl Schurer C-A-R-L-S-H-U-R-A Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is recorded in Toronto on the traditional territory of many nations including the Mississaugas of the Credit the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa the Haudenosaunee and the Wendat peoples we acknowledge that we are settlers on unceded territory we like to end every episode with a great piece of Bond-related music, and you can find our picks on... Uh, there is a Spotify uh, playlist that... I think the link might be in our Twitter bio. Um, if it's not, I'll put it there. Um, Shane, what are we signing off with this week? To my utter bliss, there are so many queer songs about space. I guess there's just something inherently gay about skygazing. <laughs> uh, also, the 70s were just a crazy time to be alive and doing drugs. So... <laughs> I narrowed it down to four 
two were serious and two were closer in tone to this film. <laughs> my first, my first thoughts were the two, what I consider obvious choices, uh, Elton John's Rocket Man, co-written with Bernie Taupin, and David Bowie's Space Oddity, you know, ground control to Major Bond. Uh, both incredible pieces of work by two iconic queer men. And then, of course, because I'm me, my mind went to Star Trek, so how could I not consider William Shatner's seminal cover of Rocket Man? <laughs> but I, I didn't want to subject our listeners or our Spotify playlist <laughs> to being saddled with that for eternity. So I pushed myself a little further and discovered this fabulous new wave bop, also from 1979, by legendary rebels and rockers, the B-52s. It's There's a Moon in the Sky, called The Moon. <laughs> I think this quote from Evan Soddy in Pop Matters encapsulates what is fascinating about both this song and how I feel about the film Moonraker. Obviously, the song's faults aren't in the title, because that is an incredible name for a song. Instead, what makes Moon suffer in comparison to so many great iconic tracks is exactly that context. Had a song of this nature been included on 1983's Whammy, Shane's Notes and not 1979's The B-52s, it would have been an immediate highlight. However, within the context of the album, Moon unfortunately comes off more as a pastiche of other great elements we've already heard on the disc, lacking that wow factor that makes every other song on here an absolute keeper. That was from Evan Soddy's uh, article titled Dance Around This Mess, the B-52s, There's a Moon in the Sky Called the Moon, from August 2014. So, all of that being said, this is a fun and meaningless little tune, and what better way to cap off this fun, meaningless little film? This is the B-52s, There's a Moon in the Sky Called the Moon. <laughs> it's it's super B-52s. This is exactly what you would expect from the B-52s. It's great. I could see this earning a like a rediscovery. Right? I think it's really fun. I love New Wave. Uh, and we're about to head into a time where we're going to need a lot of excitement out in the world to get us pumped up to be back in public. <laughs> yeah. And really, the Moonraker could have used some of this energy. Like, you know, this, right? a bit of Barbarella, it would have been a whole other experience. And it's just so weird to think that this song came out in the same year as this film. <laughs> well, thanks, as always, for listening. Until next time, kiss, kiss, bang, bang.